up only. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, Hello and welcome to Up Only TV. We've got Ari on the show. Kobe's going to be here in just a second. Before we get to it, let me tell you about our partners at Blockfolio. Golly, Kobe, how have I gone? So many episodes. <laughs> FTX. It's uponly.tv slash FTX. That's unbelievable. You can trade directly from one asset to another. When you're on FTX, earn yield on your tokens as well. 8% up to $10,000, 5% beyond $10,000. They're taking over the world too. They got some NFT platform stuff out. You can do all of it at FTXUponly.tv slash FTX. Of course, track your portfolio like you've always known and loved. Thanks to them for being our partners. Let's get to it. Kobe, how you doing? I've started to think you might mess it up on purpose now. There's <laughs> <laughs> uh... been a few times and I got a sneaking suspicion it's intentional. I like it. It's a good bit. When you do the next one, can you like completely butcher it like, <laughs> did, did as not, bad as possible? Didn't I just now? <laughs> uh, Sponsored by Western doing, Union. Mate? What would be the good uh... <laughs> Western Union? Get your reminiscences here. Uh... Or OnlyFans. <laughs> Yeah, not butcher, but don't butcher it in a way where you like kill a sponsorship deal. <laughs> Just butcher it in a way where it looks legitimately butchered. Um, how you doing, mate? That's your real background, isn't it? I thought it was like one of those Mac things. It, no, it's real background. Uh, we, our entire team moved to Miami, myself included. We've all been enjoying it. It's kind of like a, a cosmopolitan city crossed with a tropical resort. Like I, on, my, on my walk to work, I pass a manatee every day. It's wow. pretty crazy. An actual manatee. It looks like you're struggling. Are you all right? Do you need any like support? Or you look like it's a hard life? Uh, doing okay. Doing okay. Uh, it, hey, as you know, uh, crypto markets are stressful. 24-7 hyper-volatile and being an entrepreneur is, is pretty tough. So the, the, the relaxing environment is, it actually is helpful. <laughs> my quality of life is higher after the move. Yeah, I just sit in this room, which is somehow always dark. <laughs> no matter what, it's like dark. So I just sit here and um, doom scroll. Um, but welcome, uh, welcome, mate. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking the time um, to to join us. For anyone that's listening on, like, not can't see you. Do you want to say who you are, <laughs> what you do, how do you end up here? They can't even see a background. To so anyone that's listening on the podcast, the background's like don't, a beautiful, don't like look. marina. Don't look. You'll just have FOMO. You need <laughs> you need to hit your third crypto bull market uh, to justify this background. <laughs> Oh, it's uh, well. For anyone listening, it's it it's it is a beautiful Miami backdrop, but nothing uh nothing ritzy about it. Um, uh, yeah, I'll just give the two sentences on myself. Uh, so I'm Ari Polk, uh, founder and CIO of Block Tower. Uh, we're an asset management firm. Um, not here to shill anything or, or talk about me or or uh, our firm or anything. Uh, just happy to you know geek out with Kobe about uh, anything and everything crypto. I hate that. That was a very succinct go. resume because I I don't I. Don't think anyone cares. You're, oh, you're, <laughs> <laughs> the show's about you. I hate to break it to you, but a little bit of this is about going to be about you. So you can shill your bags. That's okay. Shill, well, shill I, I can probably be accused of of liking my own voice too much in the sense that I do like I, I do like talking and educating, but I actually don't find myself that interesting. So I, I prefer like I love talking about crypto and DeFi and NFTs and stuff like that, but. Um, it's actually incredibly boring giving the same resume spiel over and over and over. I get bored. I don't, I don't want to hear myself do it. So, nice. so you like you and your inner monologue, do you not get along? 
What's that? Your inner monologue. Do you like not get along? You find him oh. boring. <laughs> That's not very no, no, nice. no. Well, I just, I mean, I, I get bored if I'm uh, just giving the resume spiel. You know, just it's like it's like <laughs> okay. if if I in my twenties I went through I, I went through a period where I had a lot of first dates, and I don't know about you or for everyone listening, but like I fell into a rhythm of it's like the first fifteen minutes you kind of give the same mm. biographical details. You and it was just like, man, I'm I'm really tired of hearing myself give the same fifteen minutes of personal <laughs> details, and you know it's. So I, right. I like getting into the depth of stuff. I like exploring the nuance, the complexity, the interesting parts, which usually is like the next, you know, skips the first 15 minutes. Yeah. All right. Let's get the basics out of the way quickly then. When did you get sure. into crypto? Bought my first Bitcoin in 2014, but wasn't really in it until I'd say 2016. I'm, I'm, I don't right. consider myself an OG. So like 2014, you were just like Silk Road in and then like 2016, you're like, <laughs> wait, these things keep going up. <laughs> Uh, pretty much, pretty much. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't. I wasn't a believer. I wasn't. I you know bought a little bit. Thought it was an interesting investment. I actually, my first. I, I searched my email for my first ever reference to Bitcoin, uh, and I didn't even remember this. But a friend suggested I buy it in 2011, and I responded by oh, email wow. to this like a really smart friend who I, I trust and value highly. And I responded to him definitively. Um, Bitcoin will never have value because value comes from either a really long. Uh, history, I forget the way I forget, but basically like a really long like history of building trust around fiat or, uh, or sorry, fiat backed by guns or a really long history of trust like gold has. So that was my definitive 2011 crypto has no value. And I didn't even remember saying that. And, nice. uh, you know, so I'm, I, I'm empathetic to people who don't get it for a long time because clearly it took me years after I was first introduced to it to not be entirely dismissive. Um, so, you know, I think it takes a lot of, you know, it, not that many, I mean, even like Greg Maxwell, right. Who, who's probably the most important core developer. Um, he were, you know, in, in the Bitcoin talk forums, he was saying it, it, this isn't valuable because it's not actually Byzantine fault tolerant. So, you know, mm -hmm. even many of the uh, biggest Bitcoin whales, the most important developers and biggest believers took some time to kind of come around to it. And what was your coming around moment? What was it that made you like pause and kind of go, uh, okay, maybe there's something going on here that uh, passed me uh, flippantly dismissed? I don't think it was any one thing for me. And I think this is often true for a lot of the uh, critics, particularly from the financial side. It's you kind of need to understand a little bit about a lot of things that today we kind of take for granted. Like, you know, um, like when I was first introduced to Bitcoin, I didn't know what public private key cryptography was. I didn't know how it worked, didn't know why it would matter, didn't know what hashing was, didn't know. I, I knew nothing about cryptography, almost nothing about computer science. Um, and so there's just a lot of these like little embedded assumptions that we kind of take for granted today for good reason. We take them for granted. But um, yeah, like you think about a lot of the like no coiner, simplistic, stupid criticisms of Bitcoin that we easily answer. So like, how do you know there's, uh, like Jamie Dimon just the other day said, um, <laughs> how do you trust the 21 million limit? And it's actually not a simple answer. Like I wrote like a 20 tweet storm response, like here's why you should trust 20 million limit, but it took me 20 tweets and it's not, um, yeah, it's actually a complex question and wrapping your head around it and getting conviction that, you know, who can change the code and would that change get accepted and how does governance work and can we be confident the next New York agreement will fail? I mean, it actually gets pretty subtle and you kind of need to know a bunch of these different pieces to be able to put the puzzle together. Yeah, I like that statement from Jamie, not because, like, I know that he doesn't believe that. Like, there's no way <laughs> that this dude like has never had one of his analysts he earns like what 30 40 million a year there's no way that he's not had an analyst read the code of uh industry that is adjacent to his own <laughs> there's no way that's true um but it's it's so it's one of those statements that resonates with left curve you know it's like but how do you know <laughs> like 
I think that's why I think it's a great statement because, like, if you're politically against crypto, you can make statements like that that you know will catch on with like you know uh, a certain type of people. Like, it's a narrative that can be easily shared, and, and and then refuting it, as you said, is like it's not simple. It's not complex. It's not as simple as just reading the code. Um, so uh, I do think that's interesting. Um, all right. So you um you you just changed your mind, I guess, over um up to 2016, and then you like. Then you went like ham, went straight full time. Yeah, so I, I, it wasn't. There really wasn't a moment. It was kind of over the course of 2016. I was just falling down the rabbit hole, learning, spending, you know, six plus hours a day, uh, just reading everything I could find, and then that led into like I, I joined uh, Twitter only in early 2017, and it was just to like I, I went to some Bitcoin meetup and I said, how do I get more involved in the community? How do I meet smart people? How do I learn more? And they said, oh, join crypto Twitter, and I, I wasn't on Twitter. <laughs> So I'm like, okay. And I followed like the three people I had heard of in crypto at the time, which was like, I followed, I don't know, like Adam Back and, and Zuko Wilcox and a few other, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, I actually don't, I don't remember when I first, uh, you know, heard about you guys, but, um, and then I just started arguing with people and debating. And so I like quickly gathered a big crypto following, like in two months I had like 25,000 followers or something. And it was just, I was, I was the obnoxious guy arguing and debating with the people who knew way more than me. And people just found those debates interesting <laughs> or valuable. And, um, but it was, it was really like, like I'm, I, I kind of was obnoxious in the sense that here I am challenging like the top leaders in the field. And my, my learning style has always been debate. I basically, I, I want to, it's not that I think I'm right, but I'll assert something pretty strongly and kind of challenge the other person to like to prove why I'm wrong. Right. And I want to be proven wrong. And, and then when they prove me wrong, I say, oh, thank you so much for explaining that Adam back. I was an idiot. You know, everything. I know nothing like now I get it. Um, it's uh, I, I, there's a, a phrase for it. A Cunningham's law is the idea that the fastest way to get an answer on the Internet is not to ask a question, <laughs> but to assert something wrong. Right. If I were to ping in 2017, at least, if I were to ping a Zuko Wilcox or a Vitalik or an Adam back and say, could you please explain proof of work security assumptions to me they'd say you know f off Ari. like who, why am i gonna waste yeah, my time with you um but if i say vitalik proof of stake is fundamentally insecure and here's why it's amazing how people will then spend hours educating <laughs> you on why you're an idiot you know um and then i always try to be very grateful and appreciative and you know of, of that education time that makes sense. Um, I, I'm just going to say that I'm doing that when I'm wrong on the internet now. Oh, I was just learning. I did it on purpose. To learn. It's Cunningham's Law or whatever it is. <laughs> I like that you, I was can just name, you can name it now because I do that all the time, but definitely on accident. <laughs> I just say stupid stuff and then people fix it for me. I've been on the other side of that. I used to spend too much time on Twitter where people would say stupid things and I would educate them. And it's uh, like, wait, I, I'm spending like an hour a day doing this. Yeah. Like I just, you know, um, so I, I, I still get tricked into that sometimes where I'll write like an essay in response to some random troll. Yeah, yeah. And uh, hopefully maybe the troll didn't care and was really just trying to like troll, but hopefully someone gets value from it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um, go on, Lines, after you. Um, all right, I feel like, you know, we have a lot of people on the show where maybe they run a venture capital firm or hedge fund or whatever. And I feel like you've spent a lot of time talking about just straight up Bitcoin and the economics of crypto. Um, like where is your headspace at typically? Is it in like your investment portfolio? Is it in the tech and the big scheme of things? Like where do you, where do you spend your brain power typically? The piece I find most interesting are um, long-term thinking about what's going to get built, what's valuable, uh, how does this change the world? Frankly, that's not, really economic for me in the sense that um, I'm more of a trader by training and more of what Block Tower does is, is not five-year focused. It's a little more, I mean, 
it, sometimes it's very short term, sometimes it's one, two, three years, but it's usually, we're usually not betting on where the world's going to be in 10 or 20 years. Um, so I really love the long-term thinking and I spend a decent amount of time doing it because I enjoy it. And, and a big part of why I'm in crypto is because I find it intellectually fascinating. But um, I mean, my day-to-day -day job, uh, one, managing a firm takes up a lot of time. And I have a co-founder who's our CEO who shoulders a lot of the operational burdens. But frankly, half of my time has nothing to do with crypto. It's managing an asset management firm and all that goes into that and a team and you know marketing and HR and operations and compliance and IT and all that stuff. Um, and then of the remainder, uh, I, I'd say from a, from a like financial perspective, I view my job as mostly trying to figure out what's going to drive markets over the next one to 12 months. So what are the key themes, value creation, um, where's money coming from and flowing into the industry, what's getting built that's fundamentally valuable. Um, yeah, and then we also try to build structural advantages. So we try to build a tech stack that lets us do trading that you couldn't do without the tech. Like, I'll give you an example. Um, so let's say we see an opportunity to do arbitrage between layer one and layer two DeFi. Well, we have to build that tech stack and I need to either uh, have someone on my team get up to speed or uh, hire someone, right? Who's an expert and can really do that really well. Um, in our case, like like we, we have some DeFi experts on the team, but like uh, we only had one guy who had really had expertise in that. So we had a couple more team members kind of work with him. Um, so yeah, some, sometimes it's building technology or skill or tools or relationships to support kind of trading, that kind of thing. Um, the last thing I can share is uh, I, I, I'm also really fascinated by, I'll put it, I'll put it, I'll call it the big picture. So like the, the re, what got me into investing when I was in college, I thought I was going to become a biologist and I've always really liked systems. I'm a, I, I, I think I'm a systems thinker more than anything else. And so trying to put a puzzle together of how some complex system works always fascinated me. And at first I thought that was going to be the human body, biology, neuroscience, genetics. And then I got into poli sci in college um, where kind of understanding how does the world work politically to me, investing is kind of the ultimate puzzle because it's everything. So if you're a crypto investor, you're thinking about regulation, you're thinking about compliance and IT and not that compliance necessarily matters for whether Bitcoin survives or dies, but it impacts the price. So for example, December of last year, the treasury department was talking about um, criminalizing self-custody of Bitcoin. Would that kill Bitcoin? No, but it would move the price a lot and it would certainly be really bad for the industry and really bad for Bitcoin as a humanitarian tool, which is a big part. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in giving people defensive tools against overbearing states. That was actually like my first attraction to cryptocurrency as, as a, I'm, I'm the grandchild of Holocaust survivors and, and a bunch of people who didn't survive the Holocaust. So the idea that um, people fleeing oppressive regimes can flee with their wealth and can, can um, I mean, really, I, I think we're headed, I hope we have a world where people have the option of doing everything privately, whether that's financial communication. It's like a, a really painful thing today is that you've almost no uh, private communication channels. The technology is there. Like Signal is probably private. I'm not an expert on this, but I think it's hopefully secure, but not many people use it, right? I mean, most people are using Gmail and Telegram and WhatsApp. And um, so like even providing tools for journalists to share large data files truly securely you know, and when I say securely, I mean protected against state-level attack. There aren't many tools available today for that. Um, so my point is just like crypto investing is the intersection of like everything: consumer branding, behavioral psychology, marketing. Uh, you know, when when we're evaluating, like, we're also VCs, and when we talk to entrepreneurs, 
often with crypto startups, especially a couple of years ago, you would have great engineers or cryptographers who had no idea how to build a business, scale it, how to attract customers. You would ask a team like, how are you going to, what's your sales pipeline? Like, how are you going to, how are you going to get network effects? How are you going to scale? How are you going to get users? And they'd be like, oh, we didn't think of that. Like, we just thought we'd build a cool mousetrap and the world would be the path to our door. Um, and that's not how the world works. I mean, on rare, rare occasion, people will just fall in love with great tech, but usually you have to put it in front of them and teach them how to use it. Um, so that's what I love about crypto investing. It's kind of like everything matters. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there, Ledger. <laughs> we, went, <laughs> we, went a, we went a long way around. We went from uh, block tower operations to the Holocaust to <laughs> uh, like <laughs> to VC. It was all over the place. Well, dig in there. Uh, we? <laughs> where do you want to start? I was asking you. You're the big right. box on the screen. I'm the little box on the screen, OK? Yeah. So yeah, I just yeah, fall but, back. Uh, Every time, every time you make yourself a little bit bigger. Every show. <laughs> Did <laughs> so I? Am I sneaking up over? Um, yeah. Um, so, how much stuff do you do? You 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 mentioned your time horizons a little bit shorter than um, I guess some of our regular guests. I think our guests they fall into like the thirty minutes or the five year category, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you're on the around much more around the one year. Does that mean you mostly do like liquid markets? Um, and less VC stuff because there's a ton of like vesting or um, are you? That's true, yeah, so that's true currently. My own skill set, I'm not a VC by training. I was a trader and it's funny, like like if you, well, I'm kind of the barbell. So like I was a trader for eight years doing option market making commodities, treasuries. And then I was a fund of funds investor at the Chicago Endowment, which is, uh, it's much more structural. So like the way giant pools of capital typically invest they don't really look for good investments uh, at that scale. When I say they're not looking for a good asset, they're basically saying like, how do we deploy $10 billion intelligently? And at that scale, it's much less about, is this a good asset and more about um, like, what do we want our general allocation to be to real estate over the next decade? And then mm -hmm. do we want that to be us or foreign real estate? So it's like, it's like portfolio management much more so than investing or trading. Um, so that those, those two ends were kind of my background. I wasn't a VC ever. Um, in crypto, I've played, I've put on the hat of VC. I've written a lot of VC checks, but frankly, I don't consider myself a good one. I think I'm a very average, I think I'm probably below average at being a VC, frankly. Um, now in crypto, and, and I knew that going into this, uh, and I'm upfront with like, it, it's, it's funny. It, it sounds like that should be like, Ari, how are you allocating VC checks as like a professional investor with other people's money? and like publicly saying you're not good at it. So, so the, right, like the, the, the thinking on this and why we did it was um, that there was so much opportunity and we had such, we were in such a good spot in the sense that like we almost immediately in 2017 had a big brand. We were friendly with a lot of the founders and protocol developers. So we were getting the deal flow. People wanted our name on the cap table. And um, it, it wasn't that hard to identify, like you didn't need to pick the top 1% of crypto startups, right? You could be in the top court, basically you just eliminate the obvious scams, which frankly takes 20 minutes. And then you had great outcomes because I mean like, um, so this was before Block Tower launched, but I personally invested in the Cosmos ICO. Mm -hmm. Well, like there, you didn't need access, anyone could do it. It closed after maybe 15 or 20 minutes, but if you were in front of a computer, you could have bought as much as you wanted. And valuation on that was like, I forgot exactly, it was like 20 million or something. It's really low. 
And that was a stellar project. Like it, you didn't have to do a ton of diligence to identify that this is a promising, high quality, early stage project. And whatever your opinion on Cosmos, I'm not trying to shill anything. This was, I'm talking about you know, when it was in 2017, it wasn't hard to see that. Um, I think I didn't anticipate it doing as well as it did, but it wasn't hard to see this is a top quartile crypto project. It's a real team, real tech, real you know, addressable market. Um, and you could bought as much as you wanted. You didn't need any special help. And so my thesis was like, that's good. I can do that. I can take advantage of that. I can do that on behalf of other people who would who can't necessarily. I mean, it was easy, but actually impossible for an institution. So doing like to be in that ICO where you had to have I forget what I, I think it was like my Ether wallet at the time, submitting yeah. Ethereum to an address with no real way of confirming or diligencing or, or you know, no institution could do that. No VC fund, as far as I know, at the time, at least non crypto native did it. So it actually like basically doing that for other people was a huge value proposition for them, right? It's like, I'm putting you in a great, it's not that I'm a better analyst than anyone, I'm just putting you in a great investment, you know, that you can't do yourself. Um, now, as the industry's matured, now you've got like A16Z raising a $2 billion early stage VC fund, uh, and there are great investors in the space. I have huge respect for uh, for Dixon and the team he's building. Uh, this isn't pejorative at all. Um, but basically, I don't want to compete head to head against A16Z at VC. I, I don't think I'm as good an underwriter as Chris, uh, and they have a bigger brand than I do. And, you know, so um, the thinking on it now is um, we basically don't want to compete against the best VCs in the industry who have infinite capital. They push everyone else out of the best deals. Um, so the stuff we're doing on the VC side tends to be either really in our wheelhouse. So like, for example, if, if anyone listening to this has built a crypto trading uh, platform or software for, for let's say DeFi trading or, or CeFi trading, we have a competitive advantage at both underwriting that because there aren't that many trading firms in the industry, right? So like A16Z are not traders. We're in yeah. a better position to evaluate that startup than them. And we're users. So um, if you're a trading platform entrepreneur, you really want us as investors because you want us to beta test, you want us to promote. Like if I go out and say, not only are we investors in this platform, we're also users, that's like a really powerful public, you know, press release for them because yeah. people know that we're traders. So there's some areas like that. Um, and then occasionally we're just so, so bullish on a theme that we're like, we don't care if we're like NFTs. You know, you didn't have to be a great NFT investor two years ago to do well in NFT space. You just needed to be an NFT investor that didn't throw money away on scams and you did incredibly well. So, well, you know, um, with all that said, um, we may uh, launch a standalone VC fund at some point. And if we do that, we'd bring on a partner to lead it who who is much better than I am at the, at the core. Like, like if you think about what is VC, some of it overlaps with public investing, with trading. It's um, but but there is there's a specific skill set that is diligencing entrepreneurs, evaluating the teams, channel checking, um, like the type of evaluation you do of a startup seed stage team is very different than evaluating Microsoft. And it's its own skill set. And that's a skill set that I don't have. I think I understand it at a high level, but I'm, I'm playing in the little league compared to a, you know, A16Z that's the major leagues. I like that we complement A16Z's um, investments, but they always just hit losers in crypto. No offense to A16Z people if you're listening. <laughs> no, I'm not dissing you. Um, but you did. I actually don't know the returns. I, I'm not trying to, to show them or anything. I just, uh, I they just popped <laughs> into my mind, and I wanted to make it very clear that I wasn't trying to be negative on them. So that that was it. I just can't like I can't think of the big things that they won. Like if you think like your multi coins or your paradigms or whatever, you go, oh, they did that. Like paradigm, they hit Uniswap out the fucking park. Multicoin hit Solana, and then you're like, "What did A16Z do?" And then you're like, "Did they do BitClout? <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, what else did they? Do? Maybe they want BitClout. Who I wonder knows? if some of it's um, like check size. Like, if they just maybe have, feel like they need to write a certain size check, and then some of
some of the early access available stuff, like the checks tend to be a lot smaller and they might not consider it as worth it. I don't know, but um, I, for a while, just like if A16Z were investing in something, I would follow and I realized it's very bad on those like four investments. So I stopped that strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I was copy trading for a while. It didn't go well. Um, well hold on. Ari, Ari was about to say something. I want to hear it. Oh, well, I, I, I think they've been a little more focused on the equity side. So mm -hmm. they've been in stuff like Anchor Labs. Um, there's a couple deals that where they like took the whole round where we wanted a piece. Um, where and Anchor, <laughs> Anchor Labs was one where we, 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 we were in that as well, but they uh, they made a really big bet on it. And and I think that was a good investment. But so those equity investments haven't done as well as the crypto native ones. You know, you t yeah. I mean, it's very hard to get the thousand X's in equity. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what we've been seeing in the last year is kind of a bit of a catch up. So a lot of, you know, like Coinbase yeah. listing at 80 billion or whatever, uh, FTX raising at 20 billion. Like we've kind of seen a bit of a, the, the ratio of equity value in crypto to token value is, is it's improved on the equity side. Equity is catch. And a part of that I think is just um, traditional investors are buying the stuff up, right? I mean, Coinbase, there's a bid on, on the, uh, wait, where's Coinbase listed? NASDAQ? If there's a bid on the NASDAQ for it, you know, uh, yeah. MicroStrategy, um, uh, or the SPACs. So like like bullish, right? The block one uh, got a $9 billion <laughs> SPAC. So th that's driving up these equity valuations and making VCs like A16Z look very smart because those those there is this appetite for later stage rounds from traditional market yeah, investors. Yeah, plus I imagine OpenSea is probably doing quite well as well. Um, oh yeah, they were. I think they were in the like 20 million round and that's valued at over a billion now. They, they have yeah, plenty of heard, 20 to 50 X's in the last year. I heard that their raise was at 1 billion or 1 something and now they're already talking about like secondary valuations of like 4 to 6 billion or something uh, much larger. I mean, it makes sense. You look at a graph of their volume, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Um, you spoke a little bit about, um, you know, this, uh, what, what first attracted you to cryptocurrency was, um, you know, uh, like this mission driven stuff, right? The ability to self custody, the ability to uh, flee potentially draconian regimes. Um, we're in the middle of maybe the biggest bull market in crypto history ever. Um, and it comes with a lot of exuberance. You know, there's loads of people in Dubai at the moment all flashing their first class um, <laughs> photographs <laughs> on the way there. Um, and uh, at the same time, we've had like Dogecoin, the richest mind in the world went on television to shield Dogecoin. So then loads of other dog related currencies just started existing. Like Sheep is worth like four or five billion or something. Um, we've had Ether rocks is just a picture of a rock sell for millions of dollars. Um, you know, De even DeFi summer last year was like there was food coins for ages. Um, do you think that that uh, initial anarchism and uh, sort of social conscious purpose behind crypto has been lost? Or do you think it's just drowned out by um, the amount of money that's flowing around at the moment? Um, I think it's been diluted. Uh, I wouldn't say fully drowned out. There's definitely still a lot of very ideological uh, crypto people, Bitcoiners in particular, but you have this, I mean, Monero, Zcash. Um, I mean, I, I don't even want to, or Ethereans. Like, like it, it, I think there's a lot of ideological people in crypto that are hoping this makes the world better. They're hoping they contribute to make the world better in different ways. Um, from the defense against state regimes, um, I, I basically, I think we have, uh, I, this is kind of like the Bitcoin maximalist, um, like what they got wrong, I think, which is the, the framing is typically that 
like let's assume Bitcoin is the best asset for state level protection, which I think is a valid argument today. I, I would agree with that today, at least. Um, yeah. I don't know if it fundamentally like a criticism I have of Bitcoin is that it's subpar privacy. Like to me, Bitcoin is less Bitcoin than some other protocols that have much better privacy. But um, it's you know, I, it, I think it's the most secure against state level attack uh, and maybe it will be forever. But there's a lot of other use cases. There's a lot of other things that people obviously value and appreciate that fall short of that. So having uh, being able to have property ownership of NFTs, for example, where maybe you're not safe from a government taking it from you, but you are safe from any one company. Is there value to that? Well, I'm not saying that's better than Bitcoin or could replace Bitcoin or anything like that, but clearly there is a market for that. There's huge demand for that. I mean, possibly more demand for that than there is for state resistance. And I don't think there's anything wrong. So like Bitcoiners will say, oh, this is all a distraction. This is all people are getting, you know, they're, they're chasing after these NFTs or they're doing DeFi that's not truly 100% decentralized. And it's all the distraction from the core value proposition. And my view is it's all complementary. So a lot of those people who got brought in by NFTs, even on centralized platforms like Flow, uh, right? It, it, top shot, fully centralized. You can't withdraw without explicit permission from the team. Um, some of those people then bought Bitcoin. Some of those people get introduced. It, it's all creative because people get used to crypto. They get used to the interfaces. They get used to how to store an NFT or they or they buy a hardware wallet for NFTs or whatever, uh, or they just get used to a public address, right? Um, and then they're more comfortable with Bitcoin. Similarly, like if, an, if someone builds a Litecoin ATM, they probably add Bitcoin too, and that's great for Bitcoin. I don't think anyone's building just Litecoin ATMs, but my, my point is I think <laughs> it's anymore. all good for everything <laughs> because we're building tooling and consumer behavior and understanding that kind of sloshes around, that benefits like everything. They're, they're like, there are more Bitcoiners today because Ethereum exists than if Ethereum hadn't existed. Ethereum brought a lot of people into crypto, uh, coin, or like Coinbase gets criticized by a lot of Bitcoin maxis for not being, you know, purist enough. Coinbase probably onboarded more people to Bitcoin than any other entity or person in the world. Um, and, and so like whatever, I, I'm not, maybe you even want to say they're anti-Bitcoin, they push people to Bitcoin cash, fine, but they still onboarded more people to Bitcoin than anyone else. I onboarded to Bitcoin both because of Ethereum and Coinbase. <laughs> like <laughs> Ethereum got me excited because I, it was the first time I heard about the compute side of crypto and then coinbase was where i was told at the time like it was easy to do now that's ftx uh <laughs> but i'm a fan of ftx too happy to show your sponsor yeah thanks <laughs> um but the the bitcoin side of things i was very similar like i heard about bitcoin in 2012 kind of dismissed it as like internet money not thinking of it as investable thought of it as transactable um but it took like something else being built on crypto some, via Ethereum, via smart contract network for everything to really start clicking. And then I started learning about some of these principles of Bitcoin that's really made sense. Uh, and yeah, I think I totally qualify as someone that um, started to get excited about Bitcoin because of all the other stuff. And maybe Shiba is doing that today. At least some people <laughs> who got uh, uh, Shiba pilled into crypto or, or, Doge, or I don't know, um, some of those people will find their way to Bitcoin and some will be scarred forever and swear off crypto. But yeah. those people probably wouldn't have found their way to Bitcoin anyway. So I think it's a net win. And I mean, we see that we see the whole industry kind of benefiting together um, and in, in every way, including like entities like Grayscale that have Genesis, that have these sister entities that do trading, do brokerage, do um, like all of that supports their ability to uh, to shield GBTC and to accrue more capital into there and more liquidity and all of that. Feels so. like almost universally too. Like to your point about so many come in and then get burned out. 
the likelihood that you get in the first time at the right time is pretty bad, like because of the cyclical nature of crypto historically, that you probably have to survive your first cycle and then be around for the second without burning out or whatever else um, or losing all your money in order to really buy in as you get the financial gain on top of all the like principled reasons that you that you like it for for the, the first cycle. Um, I think that's very true. And for the for the more stodgy investors like TradFi, typically they watch the first cycle. So basically they get hard pitched on it by people they trust and they they're like, OK, maybe there's something here. Let's watch it. And then they'll watch a full cycle and then the next cycle they deploy. That's been a pattern I've seen really commonly. And I think it's a it's a basic cognitive bias that people have that we trust things we've seen much more. So I actually think this is like a inefficiency uh, in that now we have the internet. Now we have all this, like you and I, like I, I wasn't in crypto prior to 2014 at all, but I can review every Bitcoin talk for a message. I can read everything Satoshi's ever written that's public. I can review the charts of what Bitcoin did in 2011 and 12 and 13. Um, I can review news, news articles, right? So the fact that I wasn't in the ecosystem, it certainly means I don't know, there, there's pieces I'm missing. Like absolutely there's value in having been there. I'm not saying there isn't. But I can learn most of it. I can, you know, I, I can, uh, like, there was, I had a debate on Twitter with someone where they said Satoshi said X, and I, like, quoted something Satoshi wrote in 2011, and I had, like, Eric Voorhees, who's a true OG, be like, yeah, like, like I, I was I was in that debate in Bitcoin talk in 2011, you know? <laughs> um, so it was like, I, I actually, I'm a big fan of Eric's. I just think he's a really good actor in the industry. And um, we talk about usage, like the only dap on Bitcoin forever was Satoshi Dice. That was the only thing you could do with Bitcoin. <laughs> like you, you couldn't trade it, transfer it, spend it. You could just play Satoshi Dice. So that was the first real smart contract, dap, anything. Um, so it's, it, yeah, my, my, my point is I'm not claiming that I, I know anywhere near as much as Eric and, and I, or I ever will, but it doesn't make sense for me to weight my own personal observations very heavily, given that I have this public record that I can review. But that's not how people work. People want to see it themselves. They want to live through the cycle. They want to observe, and then they trust, and then they gain conviction. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes a uh, makes a lot of sense. And I, I've seen a similar thing as well, where um, I shield um, uh, a friend, like family office, on crypto in like twenty fourteen, and um, they just sat and watched for several years and then like went, right, okay, we're going to deploy and just went real, real, real big. Um, and they've done, they've done pretty well, but they definitely sat on the sidelines, like texting me about it all the time. Like, like every day they were like paying attention, but with just absolutely zero skin in the game um, for, uh, for a long time. Um, what do you think are the main things in the ecosystem that are missing um, that um, can I guess that align with that, the original sort of vision of like, um, escape from a state in a way, um, or, um, that can combat, uh, like over, over, um, overreaching regulation. You mentioned, uh, privacy, you think is a floor of Bitcoin. It's not private enough. Um, so I'm thinking along those lines, what is something that you wish there was more of, um, or wish there was at least one example of? Yeah, um, there's a there's a lot. So I, I think, um, let's see. So there's a whole tech stack for privacy that is kind of missing. So um, let's see, one level is just the communication layer. So countries can censor the internet pretty easily. We see this very commonly. We think of the internet as this thing that's hard to control. Countries control it very easily. There's basically five wires connecting the US to the internet. Many countries have one or two. So like when we hear that like Iran turned off the internet, there's literally a single bundle of wires delivering the internet to Iran. Yeah. 
literally. It's like a single, you know, and the U.S. has, I think, five, uh, and most countries have, have one, two, or three. Um, so countries are, they're able to censor the internet entirely in that way by, like, turning it off. More realistically, they're able to censor at the telecom layer where they, they actually censor by, at the packet. They, they tell the telecom, do not forward packets of this type. Um, you can, there is technology to get around that, but no one's made it consumer friendly. So it's kind of like when people say, oh, no, you can use Bitcoin privately. And I say, OK, tell me how. And it's like, well, okay, we can walk through examples. So they'll say use CoinJoin. Well, CoinJoin is not private. The founder, Greg Maxwell, invented CoinJoin. He's publicly said it's not private. Like you, it's too easy to de-anonymize. It's not for privacy. Um, it's better than nothing, but I wouldn't trust my life to it. If I was a Darknet user or if I was a journalist in Hong Kong, uh, and someone tells me to use CoinJoin, that is, I, I actually think it's borderline, I, I don't want to go too far. I, I strongly dislike when Bitcoiners, I think it's it's a, I don't know, I'll go further. I think it's an unethical claim to say that Bitcoin solves the problem for someone in the world today whose life depends on privacy. All of the privacy tools for Bitcoin uh, that I'm aware of, at least, and I've asked this question of all the people who make the claim, they're all subpar, they're all easily de-anonymized by states. Um, certainly the way any normal user is using them. Um, Tor uh, is kind of the best private internet that we have. That's not great. So half the exit nodes are in like a basement in DC. Like if you literally run Tor and you look at where the exit nodes are, um, with that set, you know, so so again, the casual user, user using Tor can be de-anonymized by the state. If you're a power user, maybe you're hand selecting the nodes and the routing and you're adding additional routes and you're layering VPNs on top. Maybe, 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 I don't know. But certainly not the way most people was, use Tor. Was that a potential note to say that like the NSA controls Tor? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I don't think I don't. So my, I, I'm not an expert on this. I don't think they control it. I think they run a lot of exit nodes, mm. a lot, and so uh, they can effectively. So, like, what is Tor? Tor adds privacy by just bouncing your message to a bunch of nodes, and the hope is, and that ju it doesn't make it private. It makes it hard. So, if the NSA wants to track you, they have to go through those points. But if you're doing three hops and two of those hops are controlled by the NSA, all the NSA has to do is subpoena or hack the third node, which is not hard. So, if, if it's a like you literally look up the IP address, you go to the French police and say like this, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a case where, where a darknet seller was de-anonymized this way using Tor. They just, one of the hops was a French uh, telecom. The FBI, you know, got a judge's order. The French telecom turned over the person and bam. The, and it was a US user. It's just, that was one of the hops. And so they got de-anonymized. Um, so that Tor depends on most of the nodes you're hopping through um, being geographically disparate, difficult to coordinate, Basically, the argument is it's too much work for the NSA to subpoena all five hops. That's the privacy. So that's obviously not great if you're a big target. The NSA, like five hops, okay, the NSA subpoenas five entities or knocks on the door of five entities. Um, that's good for most people. Like if you're a darknet buyer, you're fine. The NSA is not going to do that. The FBI isn't going to go to that level of trouble for someone for like buying heroin or something. But if you, you know, if, if you're a serious political enemy of China, that doesn't cut it. Um, so I, I, I wish there was more work being done on that. Uh, and I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if it's like anonymizing packets or adding more hops or I'm not a technical expert on this. Um, you have so the communication layer of Bitcoin is mostly reliant on the Internet today. Yes. So the Blockstream satellite is a rented satellite. That's a trusted third party. You're trusting both Blockstream and the satellite operator. Uh, and it's one satellite that can get taken down anytime. Um, or I think it's one. I don't maybe they have more than one now. Um, how else can you communicate? Yes, you can send a Bitcoin transmission via radio signal or other method, but who's there to receive it? So, and, and has the salt, like for an average user, if I said, oh, send me this pan Bitcoin transaction via radio, 
they look at me like I had three heads, right? Like no one's built the <laughs> interfaces, the consumer products to do this stuff. So I, I'm not making, I'm not claiming that Greg Maxwell can anonymize his Bitcoin. I'm saying no one else can. And the people who think they are aren't. They're, they're easily de-anonymized. Um, so we need, I, we, we need, we need a internet communication layer that's as private as we can get it. I don't know if perfect privacy is possible, um, but like the ZK technologies, and again, I'm, I'm not a cryptographer, but they seem incredible. So like ZK rollup chains where you can shield the, the mempool and basically shield everything. Um, that technology didn't exist 20 years ago. It's actually innovations in cryptography. And that kind of, I don't know if that can be integrated into the communication layer, but we have some really cool technologies that literally were invented in the last, 20, like math that was invented in the last 20 years that hasn't yet been implemented into products. Um, what else? Oh, so something I'm fond of like debating the maxis on is Bitcoin's not Bitcoin without DeFi. The, it's not sovereign money if I can't buy it, lend it, borrow it, and sell it without a trusted third party. So my view is Bitcoin has not done anything if until that. Like if I have to use a OTC desk or Coinbase or meet up in a dark alley with local Bitcoins to buy Bitcoin, how, how do I first buy Bitcoin, right? How do I? And so like. Um, People will say, well, you can work for it and get a payment or you can mine it. Realistically, consumers can't mine Bitcoin anymore. They can contribute to a hash pool, which is another trusted third party. Basically, anything you do with Bitcoin involves a trusted third party today outside of like a couple hobby groups who might pay each other for a beer. I'm sure there's some other small exceptions, but certainly the way 99.9% .9 of people use Bitcoin is via trusted third parties. Um, that's fine for this stage of development. But if we want Bitcoin to actually be sovereign money, you have to be able to lend it, borrow it and trade it as a sovereign individual without trusted third parties. And that means DeFi. So um, I really, really, really hope Bitcoin at, so the, the current obstacle right now to doing DeFi on Bitcoin uh, without using separate chains like Rootstock and Badger and um, Blo uh, Blockstack is you need roll-up chains on Bitcoin and that you need to add opcodes. So there are proposals right now by Jeremy Rubin and Greg Maxwell to add back some of the opcodes Satoshi removed. So in, I don't remember the exact timeline, but when Bitcoin first launched, there were a bunch of unused opcodes and Satoshi then removed them because they were an attack surface. So now there's discussions to add them back so that we have a little bit more programmability to support having like ZK roll-up chains on Bitcoin. It, something that frustrates me to no end is like you have maximalists who will say, Ethereum shouldn't exist, you can build this on Bitcoin. Zcash shouldn't exist, you can build it on Bitcoin. So it's literally untrue. You cannot build those things on Bitcoin today, but you easily could. So all we need is a soft fork adding in these opcodes, and then those statements would be true. So it's like, if you actually hate Ethereum and Zcash and you don't want these ICOs to exist, all you need is a soft fork adding a few variables. You don't change anything about consensus rules. You don't add any attack surface. It's like a very, very minimal safe change. And suddenly you can actually make the claim that all this stuff could be built on Bitcoin. I hope that happens. I hope um, not because I'm anti-Ethereum or anything, but I hope Bitcoin adds the ability to build this stuff on Bitcoin. It, that's just a win. So, And that could happen in the next year. And then one year of everyone putting a little square in their uh, Twitter username, and then it happens. That's how Bitcoin changes happen. Everyone's got to put a green square or something. Uh, I like Bitcoin changes because you know when one's happening, everyone's got the same thing. Uh, and Alistair talks about it a lot. Um, does adding opcodes actually make it um, uh, an Ethereum competitor, though? Isn't there like um, some technological uh, differences? Does it like it doesn't make it Turing complete, right? So Bitcoin you do, itself you can't run AMMs and stuff on it. No, no, you're right. You so, no, you're correct. So Bitcoin layer one wouldn't gain, wouldn't really change. Um, all you're doing is you're adding the ability to add a separate roll-up chain that can be anything. So that roll, you know, it's like it's like lightning is totally distinct from Bitcoin layer one. In terms, it's a, it looks nothing like it, right? It's a totally different consensus system. Everything's different. 
but it snaps on nicely. Um, and so, uh, yeah, what, what this would enable is you could add a EVM compatible fork. You could basically fork Ethereum and have it as a <laughs> layer two to Bitcoin. And and that like like what a great if you're a maxi who thinks all of like Ethereum is a scam and uh, what a great fu to Ethereum right like if you're right and and the Ethereum team's not adding real value fork Ethereum add it as a rollup chain to Bitcoin you then have all of the functionality of Ethereum on that rollup chain that can be inst that can be settled depends on how you do it but but basically can be interoperable with Bitcoin um, and then you kind of see if people use it. Is there tolerance for this in the community? Because I've seen some people talk about like second mover advantage level like of Bitcoin doing DeFi. It just sounds a lot like COPE um, because I haven't, I don't, I've not seen a lot of evidence of this being well adopted because it seems like a lot of number go up enables a lot of uh, stagnation, you know, like don't mess with a good thing if, if it's, if it's increasing in value like is there really a drive for that you mentioned a couple people working on some stuff but is it you think it's likely um i think at this point it's so i'm 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 not in the you know core insider chats i don't know what's going to happen but um it seems likely i think in the next two years that we'll get a software getting the opcodes um there does seem to be a growing appreciation among the core devs and just bitcoiners generally that um like, I, like, frankly, it's such a no-brainer. There's literally no downside uh, if it's done properly and, and you have the core team working on it, they can do it properly. But it's so simple. Uh, so maybe doing it well and correctly and auditing and testing it, it extensively takes two years, maybe, I don't know. But um, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't have any real information, but there does seem to me to be a growing uh, consensus. I don't think we're at the 50% point, but I think it's growing that this makes sense for Bitcoin, that this um, makes it look more competitive, adds at the margin. It, it's great for the narrative. If you're trying to pitch, if you're if you're Michael Saylor and you're pitching Bitcoin as the thing and no one should care about anything else, doing this eliminates the single biggest counter argument everyone says every time you say that. I mean, Michael Saylor says that and everyone says, wait, but isn't this protocol more private? Doesn't this protocol support during complete and this cool stuff and Bitcoin doesn't? And right now, he like right now, the only answer he can give is, oh, but that stuff doesn't matter. You're, you, you as an investor, you, you shouldn't care about NFTs. You shouldn't care about DeFi. Oh, those billions of dollars of value, it's fake, it's temporary. And that's just not credible. It just looks stupid at this point. I mean, that was credible maybe six years ago. Maybe it was credible with CryptoKitties. Today, with <laughs> you know the, the scale that NFTs are at, like, yeah, ETHROCs are a bubble. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm actually very hesitant to call individual NFT projects bubbles. But um, yeah, a lot of it is stupid. A lot of it is silly. But there's also clearly like, like a million people be join the crypto world just to buy NFTs. Like that is real fundamental demand that's not going away. And maybe they're not bidding up Top Shot tomorrow, they're bidding up something else or there's, you know, but um, it's just not credible. Like you, you can't make the argument that DeFi doesn't have any value and doesn't matter at all. And NFT, like no one serious takes, no one believes that anymore. No one, no one who isn't an ideologue. So it's it's really powerful for the Bitcoin value proposition. It costs almost nothing. And it adds things that cypherpunk should require. Like I'm, I'm disappointed in Bitcoiners for not demanding world-class privacy. Like you're pitching this to the people, to, to, to needy people around the world as, as the sovereign tool. How are you not clamoring for for privacy that you would actually bet your life on when that exists technologically. I'm actually, I'm like, I'll, I'll say that and I'll, I'll take any flack for it because I really believe this from a humanitarian, like there are Bitcoiners who, who are really present. I was debating with one today. I won't name him. Who's like banging the table that he's the humanitarian and Bitcoin is what's going to help uh, people in disadvantaged places. And it's like, how are you not 
how are you not championing adding a ZK roll-up chain to Bitcoin with that argument? Like you're literally pushing subpar privacy tech that's going to get people killed. I think it's borderline unethical, frankly. Um, at a minimum, they should also be at a minimum they should be at least working to um, to get Bitcoin to that point that it is what they're pitching. Uh, given that this is a soft fork, it doesn't require changing consensus rules. Doesn't require you know. Yeah, I can't wait wait to get rugged on the um, EVM side chain on Bitcoin. Buy some dog tokens on there and we'll go to zero and lose all my Bitcoin. Can't wait. Sure. You yeah. can, I, there's going to be like six teams. What do you reckon the Uniswap fork's going to be called, Ledger? you got to guess. Because Pancake, we've done foods. Laser Swap. On Avalanche, it was called Trader Joe, wasn't it? Laser, so that was laser, laser Swap. Laser Swap. Nice. I see what you're saying. Bitcoin people like orange, bulls, and lasers. So it might just be called Bull Swap. <laughs> <laughs> uh I think the timing of that could actually be interesting too. Is uh, Ethereum's fully going proof of stake? If people want to test kind of what do people value as a security model, proof of work on Bitcoin or proof of stake on Ethereum, as Ethereum's certainly at scale enough for that to be a really direct comparison of where people are willing to put their financial activity. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I actually don't have an opinion on like, would we see stuff migrate from Ethereum DeFi to Bitcoin DeFi? I have no idea. I think I think that that depends on many many things that are like unknowable today. So I'm not saying I'm yeah to be clear, I'm not saying that Bitcoin DeFi would beat Ethereum DeFi or vice versa. Um, I I'm, I believe in competition. I believe the more innovation and experimentation at this stage, the better. And yeah, like let's just give people more options and have more teams developing and experimenting with new tech. And um, actually, like I'll I'll end my anti-Bitcoin Maxi rant in a second. But my last piece on this is, if you're a Bitcoin Maxi who wants Bitcoin to basically not change ever, you you should be rationally insanely in favor of all of these highly funded test nets for Bitcoin. So like, okay, you think Zcash is a scam because they did an ICO. They're financing all the experiment, the risky experimentation of using ZK rollups on, or just using ZK snarks on a live chain to the tune of billions of dollars of capital at risk. So you don't have to Bitcoiners. So that five, two years later or five years later, you can add the world's best innovative cryptography that was invented by this team. And that has been tested with billion dollars at stake from all coiners. Basically, if and when Bitcoin adds actually good privacy with a ZK rollup chain, they will owe that all to basically they'll have free ridden on all the altcoiners that financed it and tested it and experimented with it. So if you're a Bitcoin maxi, you should be loving every ICO that happens with any inch of innovation because those are all just test nets for you. Yeah, I do think that makes sense. Um, it's always been the argument from a Bitcoin camp, we'll just copy paste it and put it onto Bitcoin later. Um, so it's good that loads of people are making stuff to copy paste. Um, <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, I, I I think the Bitcoin Maxi debate is very interesting, but I think it has now devolved into just a tribal camp and they don't listen to the words. It's just like, oh, I'm in this team. Our team says this. And it's like a chant that you learn at a sports game. <laughs> like you, don't, you don't really think about the words. You just say, you just say your words. The other person says their words. And you sit in your community and you have a nice time online. Look, it's been a pandemic. Everyone's been lonely. Everyone needs a community somewhere. Um, Plus, just the core yeah. level, like you're the Bitcoin network securing layer one. You're every what if it takes like forty five minutes to get confirmations on Bitcoin. Like you have to have those things roll back in and Bitcoin be a settlement layer. And then if you have like uh, zk snark chain rolling back to Bitcoin all the time, who cares what the fees are? They can be enormous, and it solves some of those longer term security problems as mining rewards are minimized to, for people to keep mining Bitcoin because 
it doesn't matter if it's a $5,000 transaction fee back to Bitcoin layer one. Like, there's, I, that would make Bitcoin much more interesting to me personally to probably at minimum diversify some of my DeFi activity to be on Bitcoin as well as uh, uh, Ethereum. I don't know why they wouldn't embrace something like that. I think at this point, it's purely uh, they've boxed themselves in. So like if you have people who for five years have been arguing that DeFi is worthless, NFTs are worthless, um, all this stuff is just unimportant, unnecessary. It, it's hard to publicly reverse course. People, they, they box themselves in. So it's, I, I think a lot of it is this like, uh, I, Kobe, the way you phrased it, I think it's totally accurate. It's tribalism. Although there are plenty of very smart Bitcoin maxis. And I do like, like the reason I'm actively frustrated by this is not that they disagree with me or uh, it, it's that I want intelligent debate with the smartest people to better understand. And it frustrates me that I can't have those. Like, because it, it, it def, like I expect Twitter tr debates with trolls to devolve into tribalism. My mm. hope is that I can talk to the best and brightest in ecosystems and actually have useful conversations. And it's frustrating me when I'm talking to really smart people who are being stupid in the moment because of their ideology. Because it's just mm. like, man, I, I, you have so much knowledge and, and, and intelligence to evaluate these things with me. So like if I'm diving into the gate, like um, if I'm trying to evaluate the security model of proof of work versus proof of stake, it's so hard to find an unbiased expert because the people who, are, who have deep expertise in how proof of stake and proof of work really work are almost all ideological. They're almost all in one camp or another. They're almost all giant Bitcoin whales who've been doing this for eight years or they are, you know, so it's very hard to have intelligent discussions with experts on it, which frustrates me because that's, that's the only way I'm not a game theorist. I'm not a cryptographer. I'm not an engineer. I only, I triangulate to truth by talking to experts and many experts from different biases and then trying to triangulate. And the problem is if everyone is super ideological, I like can't triangulate. I just have two opposing views that I can't interpret, uh, or it just takes me a lot more effort to actually dive into the details myself. So if you made all the Bitcoiners mad just now, um, can you piss off the <laughs> Ethereum maxis too? Like, can we talk about that? Oh, sure. What do you hate about Ethereum? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, let's I, go I think down Maximum Gecko, <laughs> pissing everyone off. What's <laughs> yeah, number yeah. three? XRP. It's I have no trouble. Coin, though. Okay. I, I, I piss everyone off uh, happily. Um, that's kind of what I'm most comfortable. I just want to hear uh, it. I enjoyed. I enjoyed 100 of that take about Bitcoin maximalism. So now I just need it <laughs> okay. on Ethereum too. Sure. Um, let's see. Ethereum is a risky startup competing on tech. <laughs> the odds that it is a market leader in 10 years, I put it sub 20 percent. Uh, why? Because it's, its moat is tiny. So people who think there's a developer moat, I think that's a one-year moat or less. Um, my favorite analogy on this is Facebook didn't need a single Friendster user. Facebook didn't need a single Friendster dev. Uh, Friendster had 50 million users at its peak. Facebook now has like half the world's population. If you have a hyperscaling industry where the number of users and developers is going to 20x, you don't need to capture any of the existing users or developers. Ethereum didn't scale by poaching core developers. Um, and, and Ethereum didn't scale by poaching Bitcoin users. In the very beginning, yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, who bought the Ethereum free sale? It was people like Saifedean, um, ironically, who said he lost his keys. Uh, Saifedean, the, the ultimate anti-Ethereum, was actually in the Ethereum free sale. Um, he, he, uh, to, to be fair, people can change their views. They can analyze and gain new information. So that doesn't make him a hypocrite. If it, it, you know, changes view, that's fine. Um, but the point is, it was Bitcoiners in the Ethereum presale mostly. But 
Ethereum's user base has 10x in the last 18 months. That wasn't by poaching Bitcoiners. That was attracting new people to crypto. That was growth in the ecosystem. Same with developer. I mean, Solana has something like, like it's more than 10,000 active developers now. Some of those are Ethereum, but a lot of those are people who were never developers for any ecosystem at all before. And, and their first crypto development is joining Solana or joining Algorand or joining the Polkadot ecosystem. So um, I don't think, I think the developer mode exists, but is very small uh, in the sense that, is it easy to get a 20,000 developer community? No, that's not easy. But if you have a talented team and with talented marketing community building and you have a, you know, a lot, of, so there's basically any project that's credible can raise like a hundred million dollars today, right? There's so much capital that, um, you know, if, if, if you have a hundred million dollar budget and a credible project and vision and a good team, can you build a 20,000 developer team? Well, we just saw it happen over and over again. Solana just did it, Polkadot just did it, right? So it's clearly not that much of a moat. And then on the tech side, I don't care how brilliant you think Vitalik is or, uh, you know, who are the thought leaders in that community like Vlad Samfir a few years ago. I actually don't even know who, who's viewed in Ethereum as like the most deep technical experts today. But um, I think Vitalik is brilliant. I think he is a really rare intellect. Uh, and frankly, I can't evaluate him on the technical side, but I love his social theory essays. Like when he talks about... Um, game theory from a social coordination and friction perspective, he's incredibly mature. It's actually some of the most like sophisticated writing on the topic I've ever encountered, including reading about like OPEC cartel game theory. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan of Vitalik's like level-headed analysis, and I think he's a great thinker and writer. Um, with that said, he's not irreplaceable. Like he's not, it's not, uh, you know, it, it, there's, I don't, I don't know if that there's any talent in crypto that, if IBM said, we're throwing a billion dollars at this. I mean, so I actually, I have a friend who just joined a machine learning team at Facebook. He's like leading a team there. And we were talking about this and what Facebook and Google and Amazon have been doing is they've been raiding academic machine learning teams. So they'll go into MIT and they will literally buy the entire machine learning computer science department, like all eight <laughs> professors. There aren't that, these teams aren't that big. So it might be eight professors. And those eight professors are all making, you know, 200K a year. And Facebook goes and says, we'll give you a million a year and we'll, will quintuple your compute budget. So MIT says you can spend $500,000 a year on compute resources and Facebook says you can spend 10 million. So you can actually do the cool research you wanna do. And that's a pretty compelling value proposition. Facebook could offer 10 million to each of them. You know, um, that my point is, it, it, it's, I don't think technical skill is a long-term moat. It's absolutely a differentiator. It's actually valuable. Like there's some of the core devs, like Greg Maxwell is a super genius. I think he truly is like one of those very, very, very rare technical talents that is maybe irreplaceable but hopefully we're not saying that bitcoin depends on him like if he gets hit by a bus tomorrow does that should bitcoin sell off 50 percent? i hope not um so yeah I, I don't think the technical talent mode uh we there's so many of the world's best cryptographers and engineers that only started getting into crypto two four years ago as the economics kind of looked more attractive if someone's a senior engineer at oracle um those people mostly weren't getting into crypto five years ago. Now they are. So it's not that if you have the money, you can hire top, top, top technical talent. Um, so my point is, Ethereum doesn't have much of a moat. It has a bit of a consumer brand moat, has a little bit of a regulatory moat, has a little bit of a de developer head start. It has minimal network effects. But those network effects, once we have bridges live, I mean, we saw what happened with Uniswap and SushiSwap. Phantom just had like just leapfrogged like everything in DeFi in a day. Basically Alameda throws a billion dollars into a protocol and it's the third biggest thing in DeFi the day after launch. So the idea that um, there's much of a moat to DeFi TBL, I think we've seen debunked over and over. Um, so yeah, Ethereum is a risky tech startup that is facing tremendous competition.
And if they're still around in 10 years in, rele in a relevant way, it means they've thought very, very hard to compete tooth and nail against all of the upstarts. Uh, and, and the upstarts have it easier because they're, they don't have the um, innovator's dilemma. This, uh, you know, incumbents, it's Ethereum with hundreds of billions of dollars of value can't move as fast, right? They like, why is Ethereum being slow, so slow moving to proof of stake? We have live proof of stake networks. It's because there's, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of value People don't want to take risk with that, right? You have to move very carefully. Um, whereas new startups can be buggy. Uh, you're right; they can they can uh, take a lot more risk, innovate a lot faster, be much more experimental. So it's hard for an incumbent like Ethereum to maintain its lead in a fast-moving tech environment. Do you think Ethereum should have a canary network, kind of like Kusama? That's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that. Because you could, we spoke about it a little bit the other day, but sort of as a joke, but. We were talking about cheap ETH, if you remember cheap cheap ETH. They were it was basically just an ETH fork that um is way cheaper. They like way more coins or something. Um and I was chatting to someone about it not long ago about um how I think if there was a canary network for ETH, development would speed up because you have this platform to make changes. You can like you can release EIP-1559 a bunch quicker because you know that it doesn't, yeah, there's like how, how many billions is Ethereum now? Like half, like half a trillion dollars or something. Um, that, yeah, that's about right, yeah. Yeah, that don't get um, put at risk when you like make this change to the protocol. Instead, you do it on something that's worth maybe one-tenth or one-twentieth of that. Um, and... I was talking through like how would you roll out this chain? How would you roll out a canary network in a way that it would be accepted by the community and like and ethcore devs were on board? But I, I think a good place to start is like, do you think it's a good idea? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I don't think I have an opinion. Um, the test nets are kind of you know like Robston tries to play that role, but I guess the key difference is the lack of kind of economic incentives. Yeah, There's definitely talking, huge right? value in having like money at stake if you're testing for bugs and game theory exploits and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, it, it seems like a good idea to me, but I haven't thought enough about it. Yeah, so I won't do the, you, you, you flooded Bitcoin, you flooded um, Ethereum. Let's do the next top three, which I believe <laughs> is uh, BNB, Cardano, and Solana. <sighs> Uh, I'll start with Solana because it's a project. It's actually one of the only things. I, so I, I don't chill much, partly because uh, I'm very, very wary of being on the wrong side of securities laws or uh, being getting accused of market manipulation or anything like that. And I don't want people to buy something on my recommendation when my opinion might change the next day and they won't necessarily hear that I changed my view. You know, I, I would hate for someone to be like, Ari, a year ago I heard you on a podcast chill this asset and I lost all my money on it. And I would And I'm like, Man, two days after that podcast, I realized it was trash, and I'm sorry that like, you didn't, you know. Um, so I, so I'm, I, I'm reluctant. But Solana, I've shilled for the last two and a half years, not aggressively, but when people ask, like, what Ari, what would you recommend? I'm like, well, there's a cool, risky startup that's one of the few things that like I'm excited about. Um, and uh, and I, I, so credit to Kyle of Multicoin, who's a friend. Uh, he crushed it in Solana. I did not have that conviction level. Uh, so like, we did well with Solana, but. Nothing like what multi our, our sizing was just trivial compared to the way they size their bet. Um, it uh, okay, so Solana, um, well-intentioned team, real project, um, really cool innovation at the communication layer. They're basically ex-telecom engineers. That was what attracted me to it. It was they were innovating in a from it like you have Zcash, which was innovating in cryptography. You have other protocols innovating at, uh, in engineering for faster speed. 
this was one of the only projects trying to innovate at the communication layer, which is something that uh, you just don't have many network engineers in crypto. It's kind of been an overlooked subfield. Um, but I did a tweet storm a few weeks ago when Solana was down. Um, and and I, I had at the time and still have a long Solana position. So I'm, I'm fudding an <laughs> asset that I own. Um, and, and still like long-term, uh, but that it's buggy and it's in beta and it, it can and, you know, went down for like 12 hours or so and very decent chance that happens again. This is, it's, it's beta. It's like, I don't even know if it's beta, like it's buggy, <laughs> risky, new software that's valued at tens of billions of dollars with giant ecosystem, with hundreds of millions of dollars of ecosystem funds. Um, it just, so there's a little bit of a disconnect between how people, how people perceive it and its stage of maturity versus like the actual stage of development it's at. Uh, it is quite centralized today. Um, to restart the network required the team coordinating the validators so they could all restart at the same time. Um, I would I would call it a centralized network today. It it really does depend on the cent on the team to stay up. Um, I think it has a path to decentralization. I think they will. I think they I think the team believes in the path. Like I don't think it's a lie. Will it actually decentralize? Who knows? That's a bet. But today, it's not a uh, mature decentralized network. It's not. So, it's a. It's a highly risky, speculative, early stage bet. It's not a usable financial network. I say this as a fan of the project. Yeah. Just uh, keeping it real. Um, okay. The others. Binance. Uh, oh man. Um, so <laughs> so, exchange coins are. Um, basically sold as equity, right? You, you, in theory, get a cash, get, get, have a share of cash flows, whether that's a burn mechanism or dividends or whatever. Um, but you have no actual legal protections. The teams are generally misleading people about what they actually own and their commitment to it. It's basically, trust us, we promise we'll keep burning and maybe we'll, maybe we won't. And you should value us as though this was actually equity ownership. Uh, Binance in particular is in the regulatory crosshairs of basically every regulator on the planet. They have not played the game well. Um, they've, you know, they've, they hired, uh, I think it was Brian Brooks, who was head of the comptroller. He was gone in less than six months. Um, they basically every time they try to, you look at the firms that have done this well, including FTX, where most crypto startups, Coinbase included, start fly by night in a gray area, committing lots of technical violations. Um, and then at some point they scale, they get big, they get money. And then they say, okay, it's time to grow up. It's time to, if, if we want to operate as a centralized entity in the U S and we don't want to go to jail or get shut down. At some point, you hire serious legal counsel. You start saying and doing the right things. And it's not about being perfectly compliant. Nothing in crypto is perfectly compliant. And frankly, not nothing in TradFi is perfectly compliant. It's about playing the game. Uh, so like Arthur Hayes is potentially facing jail time. We don't know if he'll go to jail or, or yet. I think not because he uh, facilitated training, uh, trading from Iranian officials or not AMLKYCing or not all like there was a list of 20 crimes he committed. And, and as far as I understand it, he's not disputing that. Like he committed a bunch of felonies, but so did basically every other offshore exchange operator. Why is Arthur in the crosshairs? Because he gave the middle finger to regulators publicly on TV and they take that personally. And that's just dumb. That's not how you play the game. Uh, so. Binance has not played the game well. Um, they're now suffering from it. And I think there's very likely to be serious regulatory action at some point in the next two years. Uh, hard to know what that'll mean for the token, but uh, I'd be pretty scared if I was a Binance coin whale, or frankly, if I was a Binance user, I'd be looking over my shoulder that maybe the 
so I don't know that Binance will get it, will face indictments like BitMEX did. I think the odds are fairly high. Um, if that happens, you may not be as lucky as with BitMEX. With BitMEX, you were able to get your capital off, right? But, I mean, BitMEX is still operating. No one lost any money. That, it doesn't have to end that way. Uh, regulators mm -hmm. could seize assets or when that happens and principals get indicted, that's often when exit scams happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and whether that's the, the senior leadership or whether that's junior engineers who have access to private keys, who knows, but um, I would be, I basically, I think there's a lot of counterparty risk to Binance today is what I'm saying. I was wondering what Coinbase has been doing ever since uh, 2017, because, you know, GDAX and Coinbase Pro, they, they like hadn't changed in that entire time. Like it's the same, same platform. They're busy growing up apparently. I guess that took all their, all their energy over there. They've, um, look, everyone uh, knows how bad Coinbase's tech is. Um, I'm friendly with Coinbase. I know a lot of the team. I think they're good actors. I think they've done a huge amount of good for crypto, but I'm happy to be openly critical of their exchange. Tech is a joke. The fact that it, it, we, we, we see how easy it is to have an exchange with near zero downtime. Many, many, many <laughs> offshore exchanges have higher volume, higher transaction throughput with, a, with a, you know, 1% of the downtime. So it's not that Coinbase is is busy or is too much volume or too many new customers or anything like that. None of that's a good excuse. They basically just haven't had a competent tech team to build exchange infrastructure. Um, or they've had a competent team that we couldn't get. Like, I don't know what happened internally. I don't, I, let, let me walk back that statement. I don't know their tech team building that. For whatever reason, they have not been able to competently build exchange infrastructure to date, despite all of the money they have, all the users, all the everything. I hope they get that. I hope they fix it. I hope they get it right. Um, sure. They've spent a lot of time and effort building on ramps and pipelines that a lot of people don't see. So, like, I caught up with um, uh, I I won't name him. I don't think it would hurt. I don't it would hurt, but I I, just, I don't know. I, I I won't I won't mention a name. But I caught up with um someone there who who basically leads their institutional side of the firm uh, just a couple of days ago, and he was talking about this crazy list. Of <laughs> I won't name them, but this is their job. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm you not taking LinkedIn. Their job title is this. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I, okay, I, no, I'll, I'll name him. I, I was just thinking about. I just, I just wouldn't want to uh, make a stupid mistake saying something I'm not supposed to say. Uh, and by, like, if look, if someone talks to me, I try to respect any confidentiality, any trust that's there. Right? I don't. If someone talks to me, it doesn't look. If if um, I just criticized Binance pretty explicitly. If I was, if CZ told me something and said. You know, like I'm going to tell you this. If you promise you don't share it, then I'm going to honor my mm -hmm. right. I, 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 people need to trust me, and I honor that trust. So, uh, but I, I don't think I'm talking out of turn here. So I caught up with um, Brett Tejpool, who uh, I, I actually don't know uh, his exact title, but he leads <laughs> um, basically everything on the institutional side that Coinbase is doing. Uh, and I have nothing negative to say. Like, like th those were high level criticisms of Coinbase as a company, right? I'm yeah. not attacking the individuals. <laughs> yeah. Um, Brett. So Brett, I, I'm not, uh, I, I, I don't know him personally that well, but everything I know about him is positive. He's a good actor. He's a smart guy, capable guy. So there's just nothing negative about Brett. Uh, so I just caught up with him about what they're working on and they're launching so many business lines targeting institutions that are at various processes, various stages of development. So like Coinbase uh, uh, institutional custody, Coinbase white glove OTC targeting customers like Tesla, Coinbase analytics, Coinbase, um, I think they call it, I don't think they call it, not prime. Um, they're trying to build a kind of a funding market, um, wholesale funding. Um, so there's a lot of these things and many of them have traction and many of them have customers, but like I didn't even know about a lot of that stuff because yeah. I'm not the target user of it. They're not publicizing it much. Um, so they've, I think a lot of resources have been spent um, acquiring customers and building out new business lines. Many of those efforts were failed. So they, and, and that's not a negative statement either. They've, they've launched a lot of initiatives that, um, you know, after a few months they're like, okay, this isn't going anywhere. Um, 
that's every growing business does that. Um, but yeah, I do think they've neglected serving their existing customers. I do think they should have better exchange infrastructure. I think they should have better customer support. I think um, that the fact that they're growing so quickly still today, they're still onboarding customers at a crazy pace and have provide such a poor customer service experience for retail users is bad. I'll criticize that, right? They said yeah. like, hey, Brian Armstrong, fix that. However big your customer service team is, and I know you've been growing it, double it. Double it before you uh, devote more resources to onboarding more customers. That's his secret. It's zero. He's like, done. <laughs> all right, done. So we just doubled it. It's, done. it's still zero. Uh, oh, the last one, Cardano, I actually know very little about. Um, there's a lot in- <laughs> That's good for no, himself. It... Yeah. But... <laughs> Top five cryptocurrency. I have no idea what that thing does. Hey, no, look, there's a lot happening in crypto. Uh, I'm, I, I can't follow everything uh, and I don't try. So the way I approach crypto is I say, like, what do I think the key themes are over the next five years? Like, where's the real value? Where's the real meat? So like in 2017, I fairly early came to the conclusion that the only thing that I see actually happening in crypto in the next five years, like all of this stuff, like decentralized Airbnb, tokenized cosmetics, I thought... Like, I'm not saying no one's going to build a profitable company there, but I don't see real value there. That's not where I want to spend my time. It was DeFi and NFTs uh, and then Bitcoin as, as um, uh, store value. Those were the only three use cases I saw gaining meaningful traction, meaningful to the scale of billions or hundreds of billions in the next five years. Um, I think I was so I was kind of right on that, mostly at least. Um, I actually don't know what the answer is for the next five years. I'm trying to figure that out right now. DAOs seem, you know, obviously consensus answers DAOs. Uh, those seem promising, although I don't know. I'm not sure if that happens in the next three years or if it takes a little longer. I just don't know. Um, there's a lot of excitement around metaverses properly. Metaverses are going to be huge, but I don't know. Again, is there going to be a crypto native metaverse with meaningful traction, meaning millions of daily active users in the next two years? I don't know. Um, at the moment, I would actually say no. I don't think so. But uh, I, I may be wrong, and I may change my opinion on that in a week if I see a really promising metaverse startup. I just don't, I mean, I'll be blunt. I don't see Sandbox or CryptoVoxels or any of the existing metaverses. Um, they're not good consumer products. They're not something that's going to get 5 million random people excited. They're they're for crypto hobbyists. They're for, you know, it's like you, you have a, a meetup on NFTs and CryptoVoxels where 100 people who are super NFT enthusiasts look at art. That's awesome. But that doesn't scale to 5 million casual users. It's just not a good enough product. Um, and it's really hard to build a good metaverse. It's incredibly capital intensive, tech skilling. Like there's just so much work that has to go into that on the UX side, the engineering side, that I, I actually worry that the winning metaverses in five to 10 years may be non-crypto native, might be like Facebook and Fortnite. And that to me is bad because I want a decentralized world. I want, their, like, I want Mastodon to be Twitter or at least be a viable competitor. The reality is it's not. So like, like I, it was fascinating to me. So um, this was what, like almost a year ago now, there was the big debate, ra no, when was this? When was the debate raging around um, uh, Twitter censorship of Trump? How long ago was that? Like about a year ago, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. And, and I was debating all these crypto people, including Bitcoiners uh, like Nick Carter, who uh, I, I'm a fan of, I like Nick. Um, he's a little bit on the maxi side, but I think he's very thoughtful. <laughs> um, Naval Ravikant, obviously not a maximalist. I was debating like Nick and Naval and a bunch of other people, very intense debates. We all were very passionate. Um, and they were they were like, oh, Twitter's horrible. Everyone should get off Twitter. And of course they were debating that on Twitter and neither of them got off Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I actually deactivated my Twitter account for three weeks, partly to force myself to test out all the other social media platforms, including the decentralized ones like Matt. I was like, realistically, I'm not going to use Mastodon if I don't like deactivate my Twitter. So I deactivated Twitter for three weeks. I created a Mastodon account and like eight other social media accounts on other platforms. And 
the reality is even the people who are tweeting every other day about how bad Twitter is and how we should be on decentralized alternatives, they're spending their time on Twitter, not Mastodon. And if if Nick Carter is going to spend more time on Twitter than Mastodon, that tells you Mastodon <laughs> is not scaling to is not competing with Twitter, right? If even the ideologues who really, really, really want Twitter, Mastodon be Twitter, won't leave Twitter for Mastodon, um, you need better products. You need you need devs to build things that people want to use. Uh, and that takes time. It's hard. I, I'm not trying to criticize the Mastodon team or anything. Like, it's hard, you know? Um, and you're going up against these giant, giant tech teams with multi-billion dollar budgets. We've got five out of five yeah. with a bonus of Coinbase. Yeah, Card- Cardano, <laughs> I, just, I, I would say I am deeply skeptical of Cardano uh, just existentially, but without concrete information. It's, you know, like they just launched smart contracts. I don't know if they work. I'm not, uh, I, frankly, as an investor, when you have something that is valued so insanely highly that needs to execute, that needs to build so much, just of, basically Cardano needs to execute and build for three to five years better than anyone ever has in crypto just to justify their current valuation. Yeah, the Could they do that? I don't know, but to me, that's not worth spending time evaluating. I, 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 it's better to spend time finding the things valued at twenty million that should be valued at two hundred million. Dump it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got another one, uh, Kobe. If, if unless you have something top of mind. Well, another thing to FUD. No, 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 no. A question, a, a direction uh, of questions. Yeah, uh, go for it. So you've talked about being a trader. There's this epic uh, trade that I recall, but not necessarily in a. Uh, not in a light that people understood, but your $50,000 call options from 2017, like you were always talked about trading or like, you know, various ways you were looking at the markets. You talked about being a directional trader. I assume y'all are bi-directional traders. So, you know, you'll be long, short, whatever, tactically speaking, how do you approach trading personally as a fund? And then uh, explain the $50,000 call options for sure. just for the hell of it um, from, from late 2020. Yeah, that, so that was a, for the people who don't know the background. So um, in late 2017, a headline came out on the Wall Street Journal that was it was like a very bombastic, like full article headline um, that we were anonymous at the time. It said something like some crazy crypto investor bet a million dollars that Bitcoin's going over 50K this year. And that was when <laughs> Bitcoin was at 19K. And um, I then uh, I just thought that was amusing. So it wasn't a big trade. So it. It was, um, I, got tried, I, 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 I told for, for the listeners, I told Kobe kind of the only things I couldn't talk about were oh, things sorry. that are very specific to a security. No, no, I can talk about this. I just okay. need to be a little careful at how I word it. Okay. Basically, there's just some, some compliance around being a SEC registered investment advisor. So I have to be a little careful about what, what I say. But um, uh, basically, it was not a big trade. It was a very, very average, intri- like, like the sizing of that trade is like trivial. Like it just yeah. wasn't a meaning, like it, I, I put thought into it, but it was like a very, it was a smaller than average trade that we do. So it just wasn't a big deal. <laughs> it wasn't a big bet. Second, it was Delta hedge more than Delta. Yeah. Hedge. So it was actually a bearish bet. So the thinking on this was, um, and I, I, it's funny, we actually do this a lot still today. We're actually a kind of an option whale. Um, I, so at some point on Twitter, uh, th- there was like something started kind of going viral that there was a Friday night ape that um, some crazy entity was just scooping up like one week calls every Friday night and and like winning every time and like winning hugely. That was us for three weeks kind of getting lucky and they weren't great <laughs> trades from our perspective. And like, like if you would, it's funny. One of my analysts said, Ari, should we be monitoring option order flow and then like like assuming it's smart money and then betting with it. And then like a week later, 
what people perceived as that smart flow was us. And we know how dumb we are. Like we know, like, it's just funny. Like, you know, people are like, oh, these super smart people are doing these super smart things. And it's like, no, that was me after 20 minutes of thought, you know? I definitely Um, was not tweeting that with screenshots and talking about exactly what you just said. That was not me whatsoever (laughs) misinterpreting. Well, so actually, the the, the Friday night ape stuff was uh, literally this, I'll tell you our our thesis. It was, we thought uh, so. Bitcoin had been generally rallying over weekends. Um, there had been basically we we at the time we thought it was maybe getting dragged down by traditional assets, and it was rallying during Asia sessions, and it was generally doing well on weekends. Uh, and so there was a little bit of that. Not super convicted in that, but a little bit of a pattern. Um, separately, we thought Bitcoin could gap a little bit higher because it was kind of sitting just under resistance. So we kind of felt like if it breaks this resistance, it probably makes a, a moderate move. Um, and then third, we just thought vol was a little bit cheap. So I forget the exact vol price we were paying, but I'm like, yeah, I think I like buying vol below 80 and I can buy it for 75 here. Let's buy some. And it, again, it wasn't that big of a bet for us. It wasn't like a huge high conviction thing. Uh, and then we kind of got lucky, uh, you know, winning three weeks in a row. Like it wasn't, <laughs> that was it. Um, so the, 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 the one on, in 2017, it was, I thought, basically when Bitcoin got to 8,000, I thought the bull market might be over. So that was in like early November of 2017. I didn't think the bull market was over. I was just worried that it might be. Uh, 8,000 was kind of my technical target from when we were at 1,000. Um, a lot of the kind of smarter Western crypto fund managers were thinking the same. There's probably a little bit of group thing, people like Novogratz. Like, uh, we all kind of thought like things were obviously already frothy uh, from a technical analysis perspective. They were already overextended. But, but we were in a parabolic trajectory and if you're a little bit early exiting parabolas, you miss a huge move, right? So our conversation at the time was, this might be it, but if 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 it, if the bull market continues for two more months, Bitcoin's probably at three x. Like like, it, so there's real risk that this is it. But if we're wrong and it goes another two months, Bitcoin's maybe at thirty k, and I can't miss that. Like we, my mandate is to provide long exposure to people. Um, I can't miss a two hundred percent move in Bitcoin. Um, so the question, so how do you deal with that as a portfolio manager, right? How do you how do you how do you try to um, basically? I wanted to de-risk. I didn't want to give back all our gains if that was the top, but I still wanted some exposure. Out of the money calls are a good way to play it. So what we did was we sold a bunch of Bitcoin, we de-risked the portfolio, and we added deep out of the money calls such that if Bitcoin continued its parabolic run for three to five months, we would kind of break even to the to the sales. And if Bitcoin didn't, if Bitcoin sold off, we then were in a much better place because we had basically we lose the call, we lose the million dollars, we lose, we lose the call premium, but that's it. We don't lose 50 million to to losing Bitcoin exposure, right? So it was actually kind of a bearish bet in my head. That was why I did it. I did it because I was bearish, but I, I felt I needed to maintain some right tail exposure and I was able to buy it at a reasonable price. Um, yeah, that was it. It was funny. And then, okay, so the Wall Street Journal article came out that didn't mention us by name. And I and we, we talked internally and we're like, you know, this is kind of a good chance to show off that we're like derivatives traders. Like I was a professional option market maker. There aren't that many people in crypto who have that. And so, you know, we kind of thought it would be like a good chance to show off uh, area of expertise we have that most people in crypto don't. So I um actually first, I just tweeted a smiley face with the article. And then the <laughs> journalist who wrote the article, someone forwarded in that. He emailed me and said, Ari, is this you admitting that this was you? And um, we decided to kind of out ourselves. And then I, I went on CNBC and had, it was one of the funniest uh, experiences of my life in that, well, this, this shows you how much of a geek I am. So before going on, I've only been on TV a couple times. Uh, I just don't enjoy it that much, frankly. And and I, I like conversations like this that are long form. Be going on like CNBC Fast Money where they're like, Ari, in 20 seconds, where's Bitcoin in one week? You know, like that just doesn't <laughs> interest me. That, that's what they want on TV. It's, it's like, give us the we'll sharp sound bite. 
<laughs> uh, sure, sure, yeah. Um, but so, so, th so I, I before I went on, I'm like, oh, I really better not embarrass myself with my knowledge of options, which are a little bit rusty. It had been like eight years since I've been a professional option trader. And so I literally had an option textbook and I was reviewing the formulas for kurtosis and skew. I don't know what I thought would happen. I don't know if I was expecting one of the anchors on TV to be like, Ari, can you give us the equation for the third derivative of all? Like, I don't know what I was thinking, but I actually spent like three hours reviewing like Black-Scholes math so that I could like recite the Black-Scholes formula like instantly, which it was just so stupid because like that's not, no one's that's not what CNBC fast money is. But so I go on I go on the show and they're um, they're like, Ari, so you're betting Bitcoin's gonna be over fifty thousand. I said, No, that's not what an option is. An option is a bet on volatility, not delta typically. Um, and we did a delta hedged. It was actually and I, I like shared the thinking and he goes and they go, So you think Bitcoin's going over fifty thousand? I was like, No, I thought the skew and the kurtosis of the option was cheap. And they're like, So you're saying Bitcoin's going to zero? I'm like, No. <laughs> So it, it was it was like I was preparing for like a deep academic discussion of kurtosis and it was like, what is an option? And like, you know, and that was a financial show. So the quality of discourse on financial shows is not the highest. But um, and then I had a, a, a Nassim Taleb starting tweets and he, he's a, he was a so it was funny. He, he's a professional option trader and he started tweets. So I, I like responded to one of his threads uh, that included an insult. I said, like, you're saying this, this is wrong. Here's why it's wrong. And he then Google searched my name to try to find something to make fun of me for, found the article on the options, created a tweet storm saying, Ari, you lost 100% of your money on this option bet. Why should anyone listen to you? <laughs> it's like, it's an out of the money call. It's like, <laughs> like what, how do you, like, and he's a professional option trader. Like, it makes no sense. And it was like less than 1% of our assets. Like it, <laughs> it, it's like if you, um, like a good example would be if you have A16Z, and they have a portfolio of 25 investments and one of them goes to zero. And then you're like, you guys are horrible investors. You lost 100% of your money in that seed stage startup. It's like, well, no, you expect to lose 100% of your money on five to 10 of your seed stage investments out of 25. You know, that's not a, that doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's like an out of the money call will lose most of the time. That's what out of the money means. Um, so that, there's that uh, 2017 call by. Kobe, without looking it up, can you define kurtosis for the audience? <laughs> Oh yeah, it's um, it's like when the skin starts to die, and it when the flesh starts to die. <laughs> wait, is that right? Uh, Ari. Oh, what what? I, wait, what is what word is he referring to? Oh, that's to? necrosis, isn't it? Shit. Necrosis. Necrosis. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, clever. No. Um, I'll just keep this to one sentence because, frankly, this shouldn't matter to anyone who isn't trying to be a serious option trader, and I do not encourage anyone to be an option trader like without professional training. It, it's very easy to lose a lot of money in ways you don't understand. So, okay, the one sentence is uh, options are a bet on volatility, how much and how fast things move, not the direction, because you can always hedge the direction by just trading the underlying. So you can buy a call and sell Bitcoin and turn the call into a put. So with calls and puts, what you're really, the, the price of the option is always the value of the volatility. The second volatility you can think of as a derivative of price movement. The second derivative is skew, which is basically does this thing start moving more once it gets moving? That's a really bad definition. Like anyone who does options would be like, Ari, you're just wrong. So these are really, really bad definitions, but um, it's, it's kind of like the second derivative of the tail. So it's like asking if Bitcoin rallies, um, if Bitcoin is at 150K in six months, do we think it's more or less volatile at that point? This is again, kind of technically inaccurate, but and then the third is kurtosis, which is the derivative of skew, which is like the really far tails. 
that was a really bad job, but uh, tailiness. It's kind of if you picture um. <laughs> Actually, that's what okay. it says. It, it says kurtosis is a measure of the tailedness of the probability distribution of a real, real valued random variable. So it's how far does it scoot out the long tail? If it like, it, it's like the blow off top on a parabola. Sure. This is the classic uh, way the it gets described. Curve. So this curve is a distribution of future prices. So the idea is, if this is where we are in Bitcoin right now, the question is. It's probabilistic. So these would be probabilities on the x-axis. What are the odds Bitcoin rallies to over 200K? And so a little, the, the low height of the line is very small chance. Um, and then what are the odds Bitcoin goes to 1K? Well, very small chance. So the shape of this curve is the, is the probability of Bitcoin ending up in any specific price in some time frame, and say a year. And the shape of this curve is defined by the volatility, the skew, and the kurtosis. Each one is kind of tuning a smaller fine-tuning knob. Like vol is kind of the big knob, skew is the next one, kurtosis is like a smaller tuning knob. Again, that's not a great explanation, but I like it. What I um what I learned from this chat was when in, in December, I think it was December, um, I made my like first ever crypto options trades on Deribit. Um I was like a god. Because I just bought loads of, loads of calls. I just went like deep as fuck on calls because <laughs> I was like, I don't really understand how these things work, but it's like a way to like go long without getting liquidated. <laughs> That's yeah, what I knew yeah. at the time. So I went super deep and I made so much fucking money and then I got <laughs> overconfident and I didn't really understand what I was doing and I lost it all. It was awesome. I was like, right, so <laughs> fuck, fuck tons of this thing. Made so much money. I was like, wait, how did I make this much money? That multiple is insane. The price only went up like 50%. I made like so much more money than I would have made if I'd like long, just went long spot. Um, well, the opposite so I was, like, can be true though. Full time now, and then I lost it all. You know, last it was great. A few weeks. The ago. opposite can be true. Like you can buy a Bitcoin call. Bitcoin goes up and you lose money because if it didn't go up fast <laughs> yeah, enough. Yeah, I figured yeah. that out afterwards. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really that really sucks, right? Like as a trader, as an investor, that really I've had that happen a bunch of times where I was like, I'm bullish on this thing. It's going to double in the next year, and it only went up sixty percent in a year, and I lost money. Like that just yeah. sucks, <laughs> right? Like so, yeah. It, the, the moral of the story to your listeners is. Um, Selfishly, I would encourage you all to gamble on options because I went for that. <laughs> but but my honest answer is don't trade options unless you like if you if you can't define skew and kurtosis, you probably shouldn't be trading options. Oh, and that's wow. not because anyone smarter than you, it's just you, it takes time to learn the stuff. And if you haven't put in that time, why it's it's like um why play poker against the world's best? Yeah. Right? Like like unless you've been playing poker for ten years. At least and against people and that know what the cards are, <laughs> like know the rules. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah uh, fair enough. How important do you think options are in today's crypto markets in like deciding or influencing um, directional stuff? Like how much attention should people be paying to the option flow for alpha? So really short term, meaning uh, like on a time frame of um, sub one week, they're impactful. So um, and this, this gets kind of complex, but basically if market makers are short, well, I'll give the one sentence for anyone who can understand it. Um, market makers are typically short gamma and that causes the Bitcoin price to get dragged to key levels where there's a lot of open interest. So basically if you have a lot of options open at a particular strike, you're very likely to end at that exact strike. It's nothing magical. It has to do with market makers hedging. Uh, if, there, if there's enough bullishness, you'll rip through it. It, it doesn't define, it doesn't determine things, but um, basically what it can tell you is if Bitcoin rallies, there's gonna be some sell pressure from market makers, or if Bitcoin sells off to this level, there's gonna be some buying from market makers. So we look at it, I think it's, I think 
there's some value there, but um, on longer time frames, I think there's very little impact. On uh, very short time frames, it doesn't matter because the stuff only matters as you head into option expirations. Which, which today in crypto, there's only um, weekly options on, on with any liquidity. You don't have daily options really. Well, you do. There, there's just very little volume on them, and you don't like you don't have hourly options. Um, or if someone's launched that in DeFi, there's no volume yet. Uh, so long story short, this maybe matters on kind of like a two-day to seven-day time frame. But you shouldn't feel bad if you're not looking at it. You're not missing much. Fair enough. Fair enough. You what you got on the screen, Ledger? Oh, this is just uh, different option states on Deribit and then the like popular strikes. Um, mm -hmm. And there's some information, like kind of like what Ari was talking about, that, could matter um, things that you end up creating like a pin job for basically. Um, but we had Robert Leshner on the show a few weeks ago from compound spent the whole time talking to him about compound. And at the end he, we asked for alpha uh, preview. We're going to ask you that too. And he just started talking about like options and Greeks and all this stuff. And was basically saying like in general, people in crypto are not long volatility enough uh, considering the volatility of the market. So my question for you as a trader and as an options trader, do you agree with that? Like, do you think that um, the options market is largely used for um, hedging or do you think that there's opportunity for being long vol in, in uh, crypto? Um, I think crypto on, so let's see a few, that's, uh, that's in, there's a lot of interesting stuff there to unpack. Um, so, uh, I actually didn't know Leshner was a like an options guy. That's that's interesting. Um, I don't know him super well, but next time I, I talk to him, I'll I'll uh, try to kick out with him about it. Um, something that attracted me to crypto was that crypto as a whole is very option-like, and a basket of individual names is very option-like in the sense that, um, I mean, I think this is true for probably everyone in crypto who's been in it for a few years. Um, you know, you have some small things you throw a tiny bit of money into that give you 100x that just kind of shock you. And I mean, I've, I've had a bunch of those where like I didn't expect it to do. I mean, like. Um, I, I mean, one example like YGG uh, is like a 400x in the last 10 months. Uh, that's Yield Go Games, and stellar entrepreneur. Gabby's amazing, uh, great team. Everything there is great, but I didn't expect that. You know, um, so a, a really cool thing about altcoins is you can make a lot of great. You know, you can make a lot of small bets, and if you're investing at an early stage at a low valuation, you only need one or two to hit. So it's kind of like having a basket of call options, um, and that you know one win can pay for. 300 losses, uh, which is amazing. Um, they are there is correlation across them though, right? So uh, that there's diversification on the right tail, meaning one thing may 400x while the rest don't. But on the left tail, you know, when when crypto sells off 80%, if it ever, well, I guess there's a debate of if that'll ever happen again. I think it probably will. But as we just saw, you know, in May, Bitcoin fell 45%, and uh, alts ignored it for like the first week or two, but then slingshotted down with it. Most altcoins were down the same amount. Almost everything was down. Um, I mean, almost everything was down at least 50% peak to trial at some point in May or May into June. So um, there's not that much diversification in crypto on the left tail, at least not yet today. Um, Vol so another way of framing the question is like actual vol markets, is vol cheap? I think it's about fair today. So um, two years ago, it was systematically expensive because speculators, retail wanted to buy options to, to be levered, you know, like Kobe. And and that absolutely is a, is a reason that retail tends to buy options, which is they get to, to, to speculate with leverage without a risk of margin call or liquidation. The most you can lose is the money you're putting up. 
Um, that's not really how institutions or market makers or professionals use options because those guys can use futures and dynamically delta hedge or risk manage them. They can, they, there are other tools that if you're a professional, you have. Um, today, there's a lot of option sellers that are doing it to harvest yield. So like NYDIG is selling options every month. They're selling vol every month because they have a yield fund with like a billion dollars in it and they're harvesting yield for their investors. And so that systematically depresses the price of all. And I think funds like that that are selling vol have depressed it to basically roughly fair levels. Um, it's actually still overpriced like in a literal sense. So if you bought, if just every month you bought a Bitcoin straddle over the last year, I believe you've lost money. Um, so in a realized, at least past tense over the last year, that would have been true. Um, I'm not, I, I don't know if that's accurate, by the way. It might be that like one month in January paid for it, but most months you would have lost. If, oh, short answer, I don't think volatility is clearly cheap today. So like we pick our spots. We're not just buying options. We're saying, like for us, I'll tell you like, okay, here's an alpha leak. Um, basically every time Bitcoin vol gets below 60 in a bull market, I love buying it. And or you could argue below 70, like below 60 is clear to me. Um, that doesn't mean you're gonna win. So like uh, last summer, Bitcoin vol realized was coming in at like 35 for three months in a row. Like, like we lost on options for three months because we were buying Bitcoin vol at say 55 and Bitcoin was realizing 45 vol or 40 vol. So it doesn't mean you're gonna win, but probabilistically, like I'm probably gonna be buying Bitcoin vol anytime it falls below 60 for the next year. Is it 62 right now? Is it that low? No I way. I think so. Unless I'm looking, huh? which uh, I'm which looking. for which expiration? Oh, <laughs> I might have. Uh, it's just October. I don't think you're right. It's October sixteenth. I forgot. I didn't have like all expiries or anything like that. Is that what you normally but look at? Sixty-two for. It says uh, historical volatility sixty-two point five percent on Deribit with all expiries. But is that I, I can't see this. Is that an average or realized? So yeah, I, this morning I was I looking it's a at historical the a historical volatility. I'd have to. I'd okay. Have to okay. Look so it may be. So so uh, the one sentence on this is there's implied volatility, which is the price right. of an option, right. and then there's realized volatility, which is which has nothing to do with options. It's literally how much has the asset moved around, and um, in a basically market makers or professionals can convert one to the other with constant algorithmic trading. So you can buy a straddle. And even if Bitcoin doesn't move, but it, it, it sorry, like let's say Bitcoin's at, at 55K and it ends the period of 55K, you can still make money buying the straddle if every time Bitcoin rallies 1K you sell and every time it sells 1K you buy and people use algos to do that. Very, very simple. Um, so the realized volatility is how much did the asset wiggle? And um, so I, I, that, that may be the real number for that. But if yeah. you wanna buy options today on Deribit, uh, the cheapest I saw this morning for Bitcoin was maybe 75 all, and most of the curve is over 80, over 85. Yeah. I just got pre-worn, yeah. Every time someone leaks alpha on here, it's the last time it ever works. So that's <laughs> never working again. It's <laughs> like, if you buy, it's going straight to, you're, you're losing your whole portfolio. I used to look at and this uh, on SKU and they don't show uh, it anymore. Uh, since Genesis volatility is a great you always site. Buy the, um, buy the four hour RSI when it's below 30 or whatever. Yeah. And the very next time it did that, it was like liquidated everybody. <laughs> it was like historically for the last three years, it worked perfectly. And then the next time everyone died. <laughs> Do you guys know uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at all? I know of it. You know I've of it. Been so physically. I've been twice. 
So a great line, Marcelo Garcia is probably the best jujitsu practitioner ever. And um, he started putting all of his training videos online. And people were like, man, why would, and, and he was at the time competing at a world-class level against very serious competitors. People were like, man, why would you do that? You're giving away all your secrets. You're showing people exactly what you're doing and planning. And, and his answer was, if my opponents are watching my videos, they're already playing my game. They're already engaging on the playing field I want them to engage in. My view on this is um, any edge I have in crypto is not about the things I have now. It's about continuously finding new things because things get arbitraged away. Any smart idea I have today isn't going to work in six months because um, other people are going to find it and arbit away. So I, I, I'm happy giving away all the stuff because my bet is that I'm going to keep finding new things. And if I don't, then I'm not going to stay in the industry. So it's, it's like I have to keep finding new things anyway. So maybe sharing this uh, means that I don't get to buy Bitcoin at 60 ball <laughs> again, but fine, that's motivation for me to work harder to find new things. Fair enough. I got a social question about options um, because over the last uh, year or so, maybe two years, there has been a rise of retail traders trading options. You've had like, you know, the GameStop um, uh uh, pump and AMC and um, just generally, I think the Wall Street bets subreddit went like twenty or fifty x or something in terms of subscribers. Um, and Robinhood has, uh, you know, just been going crazy. Um, why do you think speculating on options has become so popular um, amongst? I guess, like, I don't want to say teenagers, probably because there's an age. Um, yep. threshold, even though it does seem like teenagers. Everyone seems like teenagers to me. I'm old now. Um, but, you know, like... Um, 40s. 40s and <laughs> Just like, yeah, like people that obviously have other jobs, they're not financial professionals. They've just decided to have the hobby of trading options. <laughs> Partly because they don't have FTX with uh, 10x leverage. Uh, so a big part <laughs> of this is... No, that's a real... So like one of the reasons that more people in crypto don't use options is because you can get infinite leverage on exchange. Um, for equities uh, on traditional platforms like Robinhood, you typically can't get more than 2x leverage, um, maybe 3x. So if you want 10x leverage, options are kind of your only option, typically. And then also, uh, as you, you know, Kobe, your reason that um, you can just kind of set it and forget it. You don't have to worry about getting liquidated margin called. Um, I think in crypto, I think it's more like crypto is the exception because people so early on got comfortable using uh, like perps. Perps are just, right, it's like, if you're a crypto trader, you're familiar with perps. Um, and so there's kind of like, and that's where the liquidity is and the volume. And you can't really actively trade options in crypto in the sense that the bid ask spread is huge. So like, if you buy an option and sell it 10 minutes later, you're probably losing five to 10% of your money because you're gonna cross a massive bid. Like, so Bitcoin perps on FTX, for example, they trade very tight, right? Like, it, like if you randomly bought and sold Bitcoin 30 times in one day, your average, you're going to break even before fees. Like, like let's say you're random, right? So you're going to pay FTX, you know, whatever, I, I, 10 basis points per trade, and you're going to have a little bit of bid-ass spread, but you're not going to lose that much money. If you do that in options, you lose all of your, you lose your entire portfolio in a week because you're just paying these transaction fees that are so high. So, um, yeah. Now, in traditional markets for the S&P, S&P options are pretty tight, but single name stocks are also very wide. Like, if you want to buy like, like a medium-sized company's call options. You can't trade those. You can buy them, but if you if you flip them an hour later, you're again you're kind of paying these massive bid ask spreads. I like doing this to get leverage in legacy markets sometimes, um, purely by saying I, I don't really do that. Well, 
I would do this in crypto. I can let FTX in their acquisition of the world about LedgerX. So now that's available, going to be available, hopefully a little better product for retail users in crypto. But in, in legacy markets, it's easy to have access to options. So sometimes I might say put 95% of the position on common share stock, and then I'll just pick a strike that I feel fairly comfortable with, like in my ultimate target six months out. And I'll just, you know, put an, the last 5% kind of degenerately on that option. And that way, if the option is correct, if I, if I win, I'm probably going to win like twice as much as what I win overall. Like I'll do, I might mm. double the size of my total win, but if I mm. if I am partially right, like that five percent I spend on the options premiums, not really gonna crush me if it even goes to zero. So it's it's a way to get like marginal leverage mm -hmm. um, without a whole lot of risk in that type of scenario, um, and that's like pretty layman's way to to look at how to get leverage out of options without putting your whole account on it. Yeah, that's reasonable. That's if you're gonna if you're gonna kind of speculate casually on options. That's a that's probably the smartest way to do it. Um, I'd love to ask you for another bit of alpha because you, you mentioned um, you know there are some things that you can look at in options, but you're not really missing out if you don't. So don't worry about it too much. Um, and you might want to pass because you don't want to leak them up, leak, uh, leak the things you look at. But if you're looking to take a trade, um, a day trade or something. Are there like a few things that you want to check before you take a position? You look at the chart, it looks great. What are the like three things that you want to look at? Like pieces of data, pieces of information um, that you want to look at that our viewers who are not so sophisticated um, might not be looking at and might not even know exists. <laughs> uh, specific to options or just any trade? Any trade. Just any trade. You want to, you're, you know, you're long in Cardano. <laughs> gotcha. Um... Or Bitcoin or Ether, whatever. I feel like Bitcoin or Ether are more fair because there's just more products to compare to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know that I have no anything that on. is at all that, like, you know, almost certainly hasn't been said by many of your guests. Um, I think I look at, frankly, a pretty standard suite of things. Like, we look at the on-chain stuff. We use some service providers like Quantstamp. Uh, not Quantstamp, um, uh, CryptoQuant for that, a, a, a few of them. Uh, we look at unlock schedules, um, those usually don't matter except when they really, really do, right? If you're buying an <laughs> asset just ahead of a massive unlock and you're unaware of the unlock, that's a problem. Um, not every unlock is bearish, Solana's wasn't, but like using Solana's example, uh, this was what last, uh, well, I think it was maybe nine months ago or a year ago, they had the massive unlock and everyone, there was a, there was a crowded short trade because people thought it'd be very bearish. We talked to all the biggest holders and got a sense. Obviously, people don't have to be honest with you and there's an incentive for them to lie. If someone's a whale in something, they're not going to tell you I'm about to dump it. But <laughs> you can still get some sense of, you know, reading between the lines of like, are these people genuinely excited about this thing? Or are they looking to exit? You know, um, so like we got conviction that like Multicoin, for example, was genuinely still bullish on Solana. They were telling everyone they were still bullish. They were telling people privately and publicly. My impression, I like, I believe them. You know, I thought I don't think they're selling on this. And and same with most, you know, basically all the big whales we talked to. So um, unlocks don't have to be bearish, but I would assume they are without like knowing otherwise. Um, yeah, we look at the on-chain stuff, exchange balances, um, whale addresses. Uh, on the TA stuff, I think we we make use of the same TA tools as everyone. I don't think we're terribly sophisticated. We look at RSI and and different people on my team like different things, like Elliott Wave or Wyckoff or you know we'll, we'll kind of throw it all into the mix. Um, Do you pay attention to like futures and funding type stuff? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry to neglect that. Absolutely, uh, funding rate super powerful indicator. Um, like 
like we had a good trade in mobile coin where it had a massive short squeeze <laughs> at the beginning of the year. Uh, and it was like the reason we noticed it was that it was like the biggest short position on FTX. It was like 8% of the entire market cap was sitting short. And we dove into that. Like, so like my first thought was someone knows something. Someone knows this thing's going to zero. But then we dug into it. And we're like, no, we don't think anyone knows anything. We're not sure why someone short this. But uh, and then, Do you think and it was then, just a massive hold hedging the seed position? I still don't have a good answer to this. Uh, frankly, it, it, there may be people who know this, like like Sam, uh, like FTX, the platform had the short, so maybe SBF knows. I don't know, but mm. I talked to like everyone I could, and and everyone said they didn't know uh, why the, why whoever was short was shorted. So I don't know. Coin founders with like five percent of their tokens, and they shorted it so that they could get short squeezed, and the other ninety five percent of their tokens. <laughs> <laughs> it's who we we thought through theories like that and nothing made sense i don't have a good hypothesis like nothing made sense to me um but we, we ended up deciding like we don't think anyone knows anything about mobile coin that we don't like we did fundamental research into mobile coin we talked to the team we felt like it's unlikely someone like knows something that it's like about to go to zero so um that was we ended up deciding we liked it fundamentally too but it like 20x overnight on the short squeeze um, so I actually think we, we like, and then most of the move reverted. So I actually thought at the time that we won to it because we were great fundamental analysts. In reality, we probably won to it just because of the short squeeze, because it reverted almost the entire move. So, uh, so absolutely paying attention to funding rates and positioning on exchanges is absolutely critical. Um, oh, and then the last thing that I think everyone in crypto has underweighted, um, is the flywheel effects of the kind of Ponzi-nomics in DeFi. I'm using Ponzi-nomics, I don't really mean it pejoratively, but when you have one protocol that starts issuing rewards to another protocol's tokens, that's often produced immediate doubling in that, you know, in the first protocol. And so these kind of like flywheels where you're just creating value layered on top um, has been very real and persistent. And it tends, to, it does usually go away at some point, but it can often last for six months or a year or longer. So like, you know, or more broadly, seeing ecosystem development, the flywheel. So, like Solana created a lot of wealth because it rallied, and then uh, you had ecosystems developed and funds launching on Solana, and then you had NFT projects that were basically forks of Ethereum NFT projects on Solana. But everyone was excited and incentivized to pump those projects because they want Solana to succeed. They own Sol. Like you just end up with, it. and then those projects do well. They get uh, public attention. You get new people into Solana just because of the NFT hype. So you get this kind of flywheel that benefits all the assets in the ecosystem. And I think like we have or I have not not weighted that heavily enough. Uh, I feel like I, I, yeah, a lot of money has been made and will continue to be made understanding those dynamics. Yeah, uh, I think that makes sense. Um, you mentioned you reckon minus 80% can happen again. Um, what, do, what do you think that looks like? You think Bitcoin can do a full, like classic old school, um, painful, Brutal, unrelenting <laughs> retrace <laughs> minus eighty percent. You think, or you think it's like full crypto market cap and basically altcoins go to zero? I think. Uh, okay, so I think this is path dependent. The size of retraces is partly dependent on how crazy bull markets get. The crazier the bull market, the deeper the, the resulting retrace. But and I think Bitcoin is maturing. It is becoming less volatile, but slowly, but gradually, it's gone from you know, averaging 150 vol asset five years ago to 100 three years ago to maybe 80 now or 70 or 60 even. But it's still fundamentally volatile. It's still fun fundamentally a momentum asset. There's still no, it's not like, like I, I think we all believe there's fundamental value in crypto and to Bitcoin, but I can't tell you what the fair price is. Whereas in traditional assets, um, 
almost all traditional assets, including commodities like crude oil, you kind of have fundamental floors. You have levels where people who don't buy the assets step in. You, you have a level where Warren Buffett comes in and buys crude oil because it just it it, okay. it can't stay that cheap as long as people drive cars. Negative eleven dollars um, or whatever it was last March. Yeah, um, and and so you know you, you have you, you do have these fundamental floors. I'm not saying like, like could you have nuclear Armageddon that makes crude oil sure, but um, you don't have that in crypto. You don't really have levels where uh, people are like, oh, it's so like it's the opposite. If Bitcoin ever trades at say two thousand dollars, yes, there's going to be people who view it as value, largely crypto native people who probably, frankly, don't have that much cash to deploy because they've been probably been <laughs> buying it all. You know, they probably went all in at ten k. Like I probably would have gone all in at ten k or twenty k. Yeah. Well, I probably have no cash left to buy, but at twenty k, <laughs> um, you're going to have even Bitcoin faithful people starting to lose faith. And and some of that will be rational because Bitcoin will be less secure. Like these protocols are fundamentally less valuable the smaller they are in market cap because they're less secure. Like hash power is a derivative of price. Um, they're less liquid, so they're less useful for store value, for lending, for borrowing. Um, so they're actually less valuable the lower the prices and more valuable the higher the price. So they're momentum assets. So uh, I would be surprised if Bitcoin never suffers suffers a peak to trail 80% drawdown again. Does it happen in the next year or two? Like, I think right now, Bitcoin looks pretty stable to me. If there's not a lot of froth on the market, it's not like uh, like a crazy bubble or anything. So I'm not saying it's going to fall 80% from here. Um, one very plausible scenario to me is that it rallies to, say, 150K or 200K and then falls 70, 80%. Um, I'm not predicting the 150K or 200K either. I actually have very, like, I think we're in a bull market. I think we're going to see at least 80K. I'm optimistic we'll see 150K or higher, but I kind of have no no opinion on that almost at this point. I think Ethereum-based DeFi or DeFi in general is very likely to have a 2017-style hyper-parabola, hyper-collapse, and like really bad bear market. I think um, people really don't understand how far DeFi is from being more than a plaything sandbox at this point. I'm super bullish on DeFi long-term. I'm a super fan of the developers building critical, critical infrastructure. It's just... It, it, it's kind of this gap of expectations and reality where um, similar to where Bitcoin was in 2017, it was like, oh, this thing's conquering the world. It's happening, right? Like Ron Paul meme, it's happening. And the reality was you didn't have the infrastructure. You didn't have custodians. You didn't have, uh, you, you couldn't even buy Bitcoin or sell it without taking 3% slippage at any size. It wasn't an institutional asset. You didn't have, um, you didn't even have good trusted wallets. Hardware wallets still suck today. Um, you, you, it just, there were so many pieces that were missing for it to actually be a $300 billion asset. And a lot of that stuff's gone built. Like we now have nascent prime brokerage, much better trading tools. We have like test, like Tesla can buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin now with sub 1% slippage. They would have taken like 10% slippage in 2017. That's not just a function of market cap. We, we have derivatives now at scale. We have CME futures at scale. We have a $10 billion open interest in options. All that stuff really matters to liquidity and institutional buying. Uh, so with DeFi, I think it's maybe on the wrong side of the curve, which is we're in the like, like I, I like the Gartner hype cycle model where it's like people get really, really excited about a world changing technology and they're right, but they think it's two years away and it's actually 10, 20 years away. So the internet was that, right? Like everything that people were excited about in 1998, including pets.com became a billion dollar business. Like there are billion dollar online pet food companies now. Everything was right. It was just 10 years too early. Uh, it, it made no sense to value pet food companies in 1998 at a billion dollars when only 1% of the world had internet access, when people didn't trust the internet with credit cards. Like you didn't have those consumer behaviors. You didn't have, people were trying to build, um, you know, video streaming websites when everyone was on freaking dial up. You know, it was just too early. You didn't have all the, the infrastructure. 
So I think DeFi is probably in kind of a 1998 spot where um, it's real. It is going to conquer the world. It is going to disrupt banking and TradFi, but not in the next five years. Um, I don't think banks will feel DeFi in the next five years. They won't notice. It's kind of like, like has Bitcoin or Ripple inter, uh, disrupted Western Union? No, Western Union hasn't isn't aware of crypto. Western Union doesn't know Ripple or Bitcoin or Litecoin or Lightning exists. To them, it, it hasn't even started yet. None of this stuff is relevant to the pay, to the um, uh, remittances payment rail world. Uh, it will be eventually. But people thought that was happening five years ago, and they were just wildly off on the time frame. And so that's how you get these 90% declines and then a three-year winter as people almost have to rebuild from scratch. I, just, but you know, that I think that's from much higher levels. I'm very bullish DeFi now. I'm long DeFi now. I think uh, my base case is DeFi 5 to 10x is from here and then crashes 80 90%. So why do you think DeFi has been sort of in a massive bear market against ETH basically for the last year and a half? Maybe a year and a half? Maybe just less than a year February. and a half. It had a, year a spike in months. February, but last I think, August, yeah, but it didn't September. make even it didn't even make all time highs against ETH, then did it? Yeah, or about thirteen it? months ago is where it topped really, I guess, relative to ETH. Yeah. I think two things. One, it just did so well that we're in this really long like consolidation period. Like, and I say consolidation less in a TA sense, more just psychological. That like it was such a crazy um, bull run, and people allocated heavily to it and got really excited that the fundamentals had to catch up. Um, it just things can't go up in a straight line forever. So I think that's a big part of it. Another part is the inflationary side of token rewards and new projects. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of capital is getting soaked up by hyperinflation, right? Like, like for, for compound or curve to just stay flat, they need tens of millions of dollars of new buying. And you have new, new fundamentally innovative, interesting DeFi projects launching daily now. And they're competing with Uniswap and Aave and Compound and Curve, and um, and they're soaking up capital. Money yeah, that would be even... bidding up Uniswap token is instead investing in yeah. the next gen. So it's um, I, I think those are the biggest reasons. Yeah, not even just innovative ones, even just ones with a different logo. <laughs> and non-innovative, and non-innovative. <laughs> but but I do think there's a lot of genuinely interesting innovation happening in next gen DeFi right now. It's not all. Can you name drop so. some stuff? Are you allowed and name drop us some uh, things, or if not projects, at least themes of uh, like what is thematically interesting to you as a, a an additional step in crossing the chasm. Sure. Honestly, my hesitation on name dropping here is that I'm like embarrassingly out of the weeds. So I have a team and um, <laughs> the on small cap DeFi on, on innovative. Like, have you heard I, of Maker? <laughs> <laughs> no, but like basically I'm two years. I'm like a year and a half behind on DeFi. So like I follow what's happening high level. I look at metrics daily, but like dot, deep dot basically the way frankly, this is how most investment firms work as you start growing. Um, I, I don't, I can't be an expert in everything. Uh, I have two guys who are really deep on DeFi and spend most of their time on it. And what will happen is I'll say- Do they want to hey, come on the show? <laughs> yeah, you're like, God damn it, Ari, we have the wrong guest. What the hell are we? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, they, go, they, they do, you know, they do podcasts. I'm not, try, I don't try to hog the, lim the limelight. And they're very smart guys like uh, Vikram and Blake and Avi, who's a, a co-PM in, in one of my funds. Um, uh, really smart guys. Avi, and Avi yeah. did come on. Avi came on. Okay. Let's go. Uh, Avi's like, visiting what? us from uh, yeah, no, I was I was super hungover. I remember <laughs> yeah. I was like close to dying, and he said, "In the next two week, uh, alternative layer ones are going to pop off." And like they did. within minutes, all of them just went <laughs> up. <laughs> 
so yeah, a, a bunch of these guys who are definitely much deeper than I am on specific kind of sectors themes um, and and DeFi in particular. Um, so yeah, I, I can't. Def- I, I'm like I, I I some of the, what ends up happening is. As a team, we'll say, okay, we want more exposure to Ethereum-based DeFi over the next three months. We think it's an upcoming theme, or we we like the charts, whatever. And then I'll say, hey guys, like, what are you seeing that's interesting? Give me some names, and then they'll we'll we'll talk through the ideas, the themes, bottom up. So like, I have some names in my head, but like, if you ask me one question about them, I won't be able to answer. Um, <laughs> so you know so the names, you don't know the thematic nature of like within DeFi necessarily what categories you like. I kind of want to have the sheet up in front. Well, okay, I'll tell you the biggest theme that we're betting on, um, which is not contrarian at all, interoperability, obviously huge theme. Um, we like Ren. Uh, Cosmos has Gravity Bridge coming out very soon, which kind of actually, it, that's almost like it's mainnet launch. Like that's the thing that makes Cosmos actually do something. Um, uh, what else do we like? Um, there's so many. We're, we're in a bunch of small cap names that are uh, trying to innovate on interoperability, building bridges or, or cool um See, we're we don't we're not in Thorchain at the moment, but I, I I like it the team. I like the protocol. Um, Thorchain and Ren are kind of similar in my head, although they have very different models and very different value propositions. But just in these kind of interoperability solutions. Um, basically, this is the over the next twelve months, we actually get interoperability for the first time ever in crypto, which yeah. we kind of been waiting for since twenty seventeen, and it's real now. And these projects are building. There's at least forty Ethereum bridges that are live. To other protocols, many of which have then they work in different ways and they have different value propositions. So there's just so much engineering happening around this, um, and a lot of experimentation around like like Arbitum just launched their V2, which or I think they dropped it, which is like 10 to 100x times more efficient than their first release like a month ago. So just this is happening so fast. Um, so interoperability is definitely going to be a huge theme for the next year. Another, the giant theme, uh, actually, this is probably a good thing to end on that I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with. I haven't figured out how I want to bet on this. I think the biggest value creation in crypto over the next 12 to 24 months, and I'm pretty convinced of this, is connecting DeFi to real-world lending. There's a lot of projects tackling that from different angles. I'm not yet sure what I think the winning business model is or how this plays out, but let me a tiny bit of context in 2017 this was a hot theme but i was very convinced it would go nowhere so you had stuff like t0 that was saying we're going to securitize equity and real estate and debt and, and put it on a blockchain and that and that's great i was very confident that wouldn't go anywhere and i would say it hasn't so t0 does a little bit of volume there's other platforms like it that have but they're trivial in a global sense and a crypto value sense they have they have they are responsible for such a tiny part of the crypto market cap today that they may have succeeded as businesses i'm not saying like securitize isn't a great business but they they're not that wasn't a big, those aren't the $100 billion things in crypto, right? Um, and the reason is everyone in the world is very happy to sell their securities on a blockchain. Why not? You want to borrow, you're happy. Someone someone says, oh, we'll securitize your debt, Motorola. Sure. There's no buyers. The people who want to buy real estate don't want to also underwrite a risky tech platform. The people who want to buy Motorola debt don't want to also underwrite a risky anything. And eventually, I think stock trading will be entirely decentralized. Uh, and there's huge advantages to that. 24-7 trading, a single global synchronous market where, like right now, Microsoft stock, stock trades on a few different exchanges, and you can't transfer the stock between them easily. It's like very, very hard. So you end up having different prices for the exact same stock on different exchanges because it's hard to arbitrage. Basically, if you consolidate all of that into a series of DEXs that are interoperable, you get 
everything is more liquid, everything's 24-7, everything's more transparent, everything settles near instantly. It's a huge win, but there's nothing to bootstrap that. The value It's kind of like saying, do you want to be the first person ever with an electric car before there are charging stations? <laughs> do you want to be the first person ever with email before anyone else's email? And so the point is that um, all, that's a great vision, and it's going to happen at some point might be 10, 20 years away, but there's no path to incentivize people to be the first to buy Microsoft stock on a blockchain when it's less liquid, much less liquid, right? So if FTX looks Microsoft, the only person who's going to buy Microsoft than FTX is the person who for some reason can't on the NYSE where it's infinitely more liquid. It's someone who's DeFi native and can't get a broker account or doesn't want to, but no one's going to do it at scale. No one's like FTX is not going to steal huge market share from NYSE on, on the blue chip names. Um, I think not anytime soon. Uh, but they may get some good volume from crypto native people and they may do cool stuff with DeFi. I'm not saying it won't work. I'm not saying it won't be a great product, but it's not, the NYSE isn't going to notice. Um, so what's changed, what I'm seeing now is um, basically people are creating cr creative ways to tap into these new giant pools of capital like Maker. Uh, so like like there was an article two days ago that Societe Generale, a big French bank, very TradFi, very institutional, are proposing to maker governance to do a vault. Well, they were they will underwrite debt and put it in a maker vault. So what's changing is um, Dai and Tether and Celsius and BlockFi have mountains of capital they have to lend out that they kind of don't know what to do with. Uh, DeFi protocols, everyone in crypto is sitting on mountains of coins that we now want to yield farm. There's no demand for those coins. Basically, like what, who wants to borrow Bitcoin and why? Market makers want to or Ethereum. Market makers want to borrow a little bit. Uh, traders want to borrow a little bit for hedging purposes. There's no fundamental demand. No one buys ETH for working capital. So fiat, people buy fiat because they want to buy a house, because they want to build a business, because they want to hire people and pay expenses. That's borrowing. That's uncollateralized borrowing. Collateralized borrowing is a much, 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 much smaller market. So here's my most contrarian take. DeFi collateralized lending has basically peaked relative to total crypto market cap. It can't get that much bigger. So if you do the math on this, um, Basically, for people to earn attractive yields on collateralized lending, all of those yields have to come from inflationary rewards and or market makers borrowing to earn trading profits. Well, that can't grow faster than market cap and liquidity. If, if there aren't more Bitcoin traders or speculators, if the purpose in offering a higher yield, or if there aren't more buyers to buy more inflationary rewards, you can't have more inflationary rewards. The yields just fall. And we've seen that, right? So yields everywhere are much lower, right? Like, like a yield farmer a year ago was earning 100% annualized. Now they're earning... You know, it depends on how much risk you're willing to take, but they're earning 15% or 30, depending on how much risk. Um, so, yeah, my contrarian take is uh, DeFi is going to keep growing, but it can't 5x separate from crypto as a whole. Whereas uncollateralized lending, I think, is going to go from basically zero to over $100 billion in the next year. Uh, next 12 months, I mean, not calendar year, and could be a trillion dollars like a year after that. Like basically, if people in crypto build the right conduits, this thing goes unbelievably parabolic, and there's going to be at least $3 billion businesses built on this in the next 12 months. So All right. I'm you trying to figure out how to invest in it. Yeah, pre-sales, please, sir. <laughs> uh, I'll, actually, I'll, I'll shill uh, a very credible project and uh, a guy who uh, I, uh, I actually ran into in person and... I was just wondering if I could say this. I won't say the building. He and I live in the same building, and he recognized me in the elevator from Twitter. Uh, <laughs> so uh, a crypto fund manager, um, Nick uh, Garcia, who runs Space Whale, and he he runs the project for Tunify that is a project tackling this. And um, I haven't known Nick for that long, but seems to be very, very sharp. Uh, would recommend him for your show. I'm sure he could 
to talk well about this. Um, so like he's his, one uh... of the guys who's building a great project around this. And I'm not convinced if he has the right business model to tackle this, but he has a he's smart about it. Like he's thought about it very well and very thoughtfully and has a, has a really, really good pitch. Um, I'm just I'm, I'm working on getting conviction on like exactly how is this going to play out? Yeah, his um his partner Jason is a legend. Um, yeah, I, I, that was I was going to message you after and be like, "Do you know about Fortune Five? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's cool. Um, I've been hanging out with Nick a little since we ran into each other in my building a couple months ago. Nick, so. if you're watching this clip, don't just message Kobe. Message me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to connect you guys if you. Uh, well, it sounds like you already know him. But, yeah, yeah, uh, okay. I know Jason. Yeah, I, I, um, I do you, have to hop, guys. Yeah, unfortunately. I know. Up. Real quick, we asked for alpha life tip. Anything? No financial advice necessary. Something that's going to make yeah, it's just life something better. that makes people like. There's a viewers watching, right? And they want to make it. They want to be successful and happy and healthy and handsome. They want to be rich. They need some kind of guidance from like a spiritual leader. You got the beard for it. <laughs> <laughs> if you're wearing a big white robe, you might look a little bit like a Jedi or a young hot Gandalf. So just <laughs> tell us the way uh, where we can be better as people and make it to the Citadel. Uh, well, I'll share one lesson I've learned the hard way, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of parroting uh, Sue of Three Arrows on this. He tweets this a lot. Um, keeping yourself healthy, uh, in his words, uh, doesn't matter how much money you make, you won't enjoy it if you're not uh, healthy physically and in mind. I definitely burnt the candle from both ends building Block Tower and <laughs> was so burnt out after like 2018. Like 2017, 2018 were both insanely intense, demanding for different reasons. Uh, and I was so existentially burnt out, really was detrimental. It took a lot of work to kind of recover. Like I, I would be, I would be happier, healthier, and wealthier if I had been a little bit more um, steady. Uh, there are times where you got to go a million hours, uh, where you, you got to go a million miles per hour. There are times where you have to pull an all-nighter, and it makes sense to. But um, yeah, I'd say maintaining your mental and physical health and prioritizing that is how you win long term and how you enjoy the process. Thank you, mate. Chat, can you spam GM or GN depending on your uh, local time zone while Ledger reads us out? Thanks so much for being here. Ari, we'll uh, link up all the places, Blog Tower, Twitter, all those things must follow. Uh, thank you. We appreciate you. And everybody, please go to uponline.tv slash FTX. Make a trade there today. You heard uh, some you know, nice uh, endorsements here on the show. Make a trade directly from one asset to the other. Track your portfolio. Earn yield on your assets uh, up to 8% to $10,000 and 5% beyond $10,000 only on FTX. Uponline.tv slash FTX. Thanks to them for being our partner. Thanks to you for listening. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Jam.